Do you want to do the intro? This is great. I'm going to try. Matthew Weatherly White, welcome back. (laughs) Um, We last spoke with you on episode 14. I believe that was in early 2018. And nothing's uh, changed. (laughs) Nothing's changed in (laughs) any of our lives. Um, So we're just going to do a rehash of behavioral economics, which is the discussion that... um, we purportedly had <laughs> that was a wide-ranging conversation it went all over the place it was it our did. it was the first three-hour yeah it was our longest episode yeah yeah at that at that time um and and one of remains for me uh, uh, despite the lack of details just the feeling from it was is one of the more sort of memorable encounters because it went everywhere from adventure racing to the Vatican um, to <laughs> to rest wise to rest wise quantifying yes. recovery states. Which, by the way, we it, we sold. Oh, good the company. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah, to a publicly traded company. Um, oh, no kidding. Which was pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah. We did. It wasn't a great exit for us or for the investors. We just sort of put the thing on life support for way too many years for there yeah. to be any real deep economic value there. But the company yeah. that acquired us. We're very excited about the data set, one. Very excited about the algorithm, two. Very excited about the IP, three. And after it closed, they basically said to us, and oh, by the way, you were wildly undercharging for your service, and that's why you never built it, because if you had charged half a million dollars, like we charge our clients, you would have had them all forever. And it was such an interesting little window into the perception of value and how much you're paying for it. That is not, I mean, when you look at companies now like uh, Whoop or, you know, the the thing, kind of like secondary companies that are holding up the banner of what you're doing, maybe with some add-ons, but that's essentially at the root of it. They're taking into consideration some HRV and some some other like really kind of basic stuff um, and not really... I don't think they're actually looking for improvement, but man, I don't know how much Whoop is worth, but a lot. But that, what what struck us through the lengthy negotiation um, for for the acquisition was that there's really two markets, right? There's the elite athlete market, primarily international sports federation, national sports federations, and professional teams, and then there's the mass market, and the mass market doesn't want to pay for shit. Yeah, yeah, okay. They yeah. want it all to be free. They yeah. want it to be super easy. They don't care if it's accurate. And it, expect it to be free. Expect it to be free. Fully willing <laughs> to be the product yep. themselves. Sure. Yeah. And then the elite market is willing to pay an enormous amount for, yeah. you know, to use uh, uh, David Brailsford's co- there we go. phrase, you know, incremental gains, right? Yeah. Or marginal marginal, marginal, marginal gains. Yeah. Um, and they're willing to pay an enormous amount for marginal gains because the benefits are so extraordinary. Yeah. financially right yeah so it was just interesting for us to you know launch the product originally targeting the mass market end up failing there building the product for elite teams and recall one of our one of our first clients was manchester united followed immediately by the new zealand all blacks right it was like yeah. holy shit like we nailed this right wow we're gonna make a ton and Basically, the message was that we're not, we weren't charging. They didn't perceive value in it because we weren't charging enough for it, which you know, I don't know if that's 
accurate or not. It might have just been a little dig that they gave us on the way so, out. So <clears throat> what you're saying is that the nonprofit products are appropriately priced to <laughs> confer a greater feeling of value. Yeah. <laughs> and they're also for marginal gains. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. From, as, from, from an outsider's perspective, I think what you guys have created as a sort of a depository of wisdom, experience, and content, in air quotes, is actually something that is really valuable. It's highly differentiate, differentiated in the marketplace. The question is, how do you monetize it and do you want to? Right. This because this is no job. Thank you for thinking that it's valuable because I think um, we sometimes question that. I think that's the question that always goes: oh, is what we're doing valuable, and like, how do we make it more so? Um, and then how do we actually recognize the value so that we can actually sell sell it? Because I think that that's inherent to being successful. Sell us in market. Market, yeah, and marketing yeah. becomes the. I think that becomes the the bottleneck for for what we do. You know, you cast a big net. Not very many people are into self-awareness, it turns out. No. And uh, you cast a specific uh, net and you, I think you end up in um, what people are calling now audience capture, but what we would deem like um, what uh, caricature permanence, <laughs> I think a more accurate description, which is like you just are becoming what you want your your very small audience to make you. And I, I think you've been avoiding that your entire career. <laughs> I have. <laughs> I've tried so hard, and sometimes I feel like I uh, that I feel like I got to the good of it, mm -hmm. you know, of like not becoming the ranting old guy on the mountaintop, you know, or whatever. It was. Chop, chopping bolts. Ch <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> I mean, I did. I did step out in public somewhat recently on the on that controversy again, but. It's like, yeah, it's, it didn't change. You know, like, of for all the bruises on our foreheads, human nature didn't change. Yeah, yeah. So um, so we're just commenting on it now instead of trying to change it. <laughs> or, or, or steering in a way. Like, I feel really good about, um, and I would not have said this three months ago, I feel really good about the capacity manual. Oh, yeah. Um, the, what it took to make it, um, of and from everybody involved was, you know, that's that's where the value mm -hmm. lies in a way is the the evolution and growth in theses um, in the, in the overall thesis and then the way to communicate it um, was really fucking amazing to watch. Like, yeah, we've been doing this for a really long time and we still don't know. And if we, overthinkers all, self-critical all, imposter syndrome all, if we can't accurately communicate it, then what the fuck are all those other people <laughs> who are in the same space doing? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Charades? I, it's like... I think the same oh, thing. Oh, it starts with C H A R, <laughs> charlatanism. <laughs> I I think you're right. Like, the, I mean, uh, how many different spaces do you operate in where 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 the topic is complex or not not totally 
uh, clarity is not totally available to one individual, I guess is the best way mm. to put it. Like there, there's too much information, there's too much data for one human being to recognize and have a clear picture on it, but you still have to navigate it. You know, like I, I think you, I mean, you've been in the sport, you know, fitness, whatever sport, a sport, competitive sport, mountain biking, uh, then recoverability, coaching, that kind of thing. And then finance as well. It's like, how does anybody take on any of these subjects that are vast and complex and kind of incomprehensible? Um, I'll sort of put that back to you guys and with an observation and say that I think you guys do it masterfully and it starts with humility. (laughs) Yeah. The Atul Gawande, the, the author, um, doctor wrote a book called complications and he wrote a second book called better. I think, um, he basically, that's what he says about medicine. And he says at some point in the future, we will all look back at what we think of now as tip of the spear treatment. And we will say, fuck, that, is bar- that was barbaric. How could they possibly have done that? Yeah. Wow. And I think that that, yeah. lo- that sort of essential humility is how you get to explaining complex problems in a really simple way by starting, look, we don't really know the answer here. Um, but here are, here are, from a pattern recognition, pattern recognition perspective, here are the observations that we've made over 30 years. Um, you know, we were talking earlier about a call that we made when I was still in finance, um, preceding the great financial crisis. And, you know, stuff was looking kind of funky in the subprime market. And we were seeing some collapses of, you know, nationwide went down. Um, and then there were some collateralized debt obligations that were securitized that were looking super shaky. And it looked like it was going to get pretty bad for the subprime real estate market. And you know, Greenspan and central bankers were all saying it's going to be a contain. It's going to be not a really big problem. And, you know, when, when you're stewarding billions of dollars of money, you, you sort of have to you have sort of game out what the various <laughs> scenarios are, right? You do so need you're not to look at some potentiality. Yeah. So you're yeah. not caught just totally flat footed and looking like an idiot. And we were sitting around the boardroom just talking about this. I'm like, well, it's probably going to be all right. And there's a lot of money getting backstopping a lot of this shit. And, but what would it take? Like, what would it look like as the, the warning flare that it's a lot worse? And, I don't remember who it was at the table, but somebody said, yeah, well, if one of the big Wall Street banks goes under, well, then surely that's a sign that this, you know, CMO thing is just way worse than anybody thinks. And we're like, oh, yeah, that'll never happen. But if it does, well, that's our sign, and we have to agree to act at that moment. And sure enough, instantaneously. Yeah, and sure enough, Bear Stearns went down, and the next day we we sold down 50% of our public equity exposure just on the assumption that it's a risk management strategy at this point, yeah. because who knows how bad it's going to get? Because if Bear Stearns goes down, who's next? If uh, if you would have left where you were at, how bad would, would it be bankruptcy? So at that time, um, we had about 60% public equity. Oh, okay. And that, as we know, got would have been cut by 50%. Yeah. So that would have been a 30% reduction in the value of our total portfolio, which would have been sort of roughly in line with markets. But that's not what we get... Well, that's not what we were getting paid to do, right? Yeah. So we yeah. cut it by half. So we ended up with about a 15% drop in the value of the public equity stuff. But on the flip side, our bond positions all appreciated dramatically. And we had fairly long dated, um, you know, investment grade tax exempt debt. And then we also, from the liquidation proceeds from the public equity, ended up buying about $200 million ish of senior secured corporate debt. And the average yield on the portfolio was like 15%, which is crazy if you think about it, right? It was a very yeah, short I mean, window. Especially in that. Yeah, and it was right after TARP failed to pass. And the, the markets were shitting. And I, I mean, 
this is a, I don't know if I shared this one when we were talking about this last time, but it's such a great exemplar of, of how freaked out the markets were. So, you know, the commercial paper market, which is the most liquid market in the world, is overnight commercial paper, right? A buddy of mine ran the trading desk at um, Credit Suisse for commercial paper, and they were a pretty big trader. But like every time I ever talk with him, which was once every four to six months, it's mayhem behind him. It's just total fucking mayhem. People are yelling. It's like mm, yeah. it's, it's like a scene from Trading Places, yeah, right? Yeah. And um, I call him the next day after Tarp failed to pass, and I was like, "Hey, man, like, what are the commercial paper? What are the, what's the commercial markets doing?" He said, "Nothing. They're locked. We haven't done a single trade all day. Nobody is borrowing money or lending money to anybody overnight." Because nobody believes that the next day anybody will be a counterparty that's worth the risk, and that's mm-hmm. when we bought all these corporate debt. We were, and because because the yields went, I mean, they went from like they were trading like at six, and they went from six to fifteen in like a day and a half. Okay, which is totally unheard of. Yeah, and we said, okay, these guys, none none of these none of these corporations. And we built a portfolio of like fifteen companies, and none of them had gone, none of them had even defaulted during the Great Depression. Not one of them, right? <laughs> So we're like, is it going to be worse than that? Probably not. So, I, I mean, I've got conceptually uh, foundational errors and like me relating. And maybe this is just the the idea that the story, the narrative that I've come up with, like banking in general, because it is. It's a huge subject. <laughs> like, I mean, you get into the abstract of that. It just represents value, yada, yada. The economy to me is representative of our um or the consensus on whether we think our future is going to be better or worse. Yeah, that's in, yeah, I I would agree with that. It, that underlies the premise of investing. Yeah, right, like so if I yeah, cr- credit is extended when I think that the when when I think it's going to go up and therefore you reap the return. Well, technically credit would be extended based on the premise that the the borrower has the capacity to pay you back. Right. Equity would equity equity okay, would be okay. wrong. Yeah. Okay. When I think something's going to be worth more in the future, and I will benefit from the rise in value. Right. The, right? the, the interest, like my interest in the future, is the appreciation of the value of this thing. Is that yeah? I'm going to get super like nitpicky. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah. Onwards, no, I, I please do. Yeah, I would yeah. say your your economic value mm-hmm. will appreciate in lockstep with the value of the underlying asset. Okay. With an equity investment, you your ownership interest will appreciate in value. If the company does well with debt, all you really care about is they're going to pay you back. Okay. The value of the company could go into the shitter, but as long as they've got enough cash flow to, to service the debt, then you're good as a as a as a lender. And we'll get to this, but that is the problem with uh, SVB. Well, there's lots of problems. Lots <laughs> of problems. Okay, but that that's one of one of the things is that they do not have the 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 assets would be the right term, or they don't have the cash flow to pay their debt. No. Oh. That's not what crushed them. I mean, yeah, this is where this this is where this all started this with. Is, yeah. With where we Mark. started having this conversation because I'm like, what's happened? What the fuck just happened, yeah. man? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the, with SVB is a, it's a particularly interesting story, I think. And remember, I'm not a bank regulator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, my insight comes from, a, from the perspective of a, of a market participant. Mm-hmm rather than an executive at a bank or a regulator, right? But um, I guess I'd offer three ground rules for this conversation. Okay. One, there is no bank on the earth that is engineered to survive a bank run. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. For not, sure. Yeah. Not because one. it's fractionalized banking. Fractionalized yeah, okay. banking, which is definition by definition a confidence game. <laughs> and when the confidence, I might call it a Ponzi scheme. Is, but <laughs> yeah. So I wouldn't call it a Ponzi <laughs> okay, scheme because okay. that's a pretty technical term. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a confidence game, and you can mm -hmm. shorten that to con game if you're feeling spicy. <laughs> <laughs> I like that better anyway. You know, yeah. Back yeah, when okay. we only had 140 characters to make a point. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a confidence game, and by that I mean that you have to have confidence that the bank is going to have the cash for you if you need it. Mm -hmm. And if you doubt that that will happen, well, then you go and get your money right now. Right. Which is exactly what happened with SVB. Gotcha. Okay. So the the second and somebody signaled that is that somebody somebody signaled Peter Thiel. Yeah. Okay. That so it was initiated, and that's generally how it happens. So so SVB again was a pretty kind of a peculiar one because they were very clear in their disclosures. What Peter Thiel did was he read the financials and he said, um, technically because of the mark to market value of the bond portfolio that they own, they're insolvent. Gotcha. Okay. This is a very important distinction because mm -hmm. they had over $100 billion worth of assets yeah. that were treasuries and agencies, which are backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. government. They had another $60 billion-ish. Sorry, my phone is buzzing in my yeah, pocket. Okay. Sorry about that. Um, they had another $60 billion-ish of more unique, unique loans, um, mortgages, business loans, et cetera. And most of them were probably credit worthy. And then they had another 10 billion ish of super speculative shit. And that's really, as far as banking goes, that's about as conservative as you can get. I was going to say, that seems like a pretty reasonable distribution. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Super reasonable. But what they did with their treasury portfolio in the hunt for yield, i.e., profits to the bank, they bought long dated treasuries. And the problem with long dated treasuries is that the value of them is quite volatile relative to interest rates. There's this concept called duration, which expresses the volatility of a bond portfolio as interest rates move, right? Okay, and yeah. so they were a long duration portfolio, which means they're a volatile portfolio. Now they were allowed to carry these bonds at purchase price for the purposes of capitalization ratios, how much capital they had to keep the bank solvent. But then the value of this portfolio dropped by about 20% because interest rates went from Sky zero yeah. to five. Yeah. And so the value of the bonds went down and somebody noticed. Oh, right. So they were like skirting under the radar. Totally. Until somebody was like, hey, wait a second. Okay. And Peter Thiel was like, you know, I don't think these guys are solvent right now. We should probably take our money out. Uh, okay. And that's what started it. And, you know, venture capitalists, the Uber mention, they're fucking lemmings, man. They are yeah. like serious, serious lemmings. And as soon as Peter Thiel did that, they yeah, all were like, whoa, me too, me too. Yeah, yeah. And $42 billion is gone. Just left like the that. bank in a day. Um, Which no bank is set up to survive something yeah. like that. Like you and, just, you cannot. How, what is, how functionally does that $42 billion move? Because, you know. All you electronically. Saw, that's kind of what I figured. So the. You know the lines of people out in front of the the bank. No, some dude. One one dude. That was just like a news graphic, right, to support yep. a narrative. Yep. One dude transferred. <laughs> one dude transferred as this is a rumor. I can't, I don't know. Transferred three billion dollars while sitting on the toilet for privacy at a dinner party. He moved three billion dollars electronically with his phone. No shit. Wow. How, um, just on a question of like, obviously, uh, I've, I've talked to a couple of people like 
for for a little bit we're being coached with like wealth management and trying to like get interested in investing it's very basic yeah. stuff that most people kind of i think know uh, or do inherently when they have normal jobs and whatever so he was at advising us for some point um but he also talked about this point about like the the pain in the ass that it is to have a lot of money right and we're not just talking like yeah. it, and it's kind of anything over fdic insurance is like you are you're vulnerable um, and most people will split between banks or they'll go like offshore banking or they'll do like some of these like schemes or hold them in bonds, treasury bonds, stuff like that. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, the administrative aspect of having a lot of wealth can certainly overwhelm you and it depends on how you build your portfolio, okay. et cetera, et cetera. Um, but your point about the FDI insurance, there's a platform where you can put money on the platform and they distribute it among banks. So you ha end up with, uh, okay. you know, 30, 40, 50, 90 bank relationships, but it's They're all consolidated all yeah. okay. on a single statement and they charge you a fraction of a percent. Okay, so it's not that cost. big of a headache. Um, it, de it depends on how you construct your portfolio. Okay. Yeah. Um, but you it, it doesn't have to be that way. I'm just thinking from from the from the aspect of like when you hear people moving money around like this, like um, is that part of the consideration that it is very hard to manage something in the billions, or there are constructs yeah. available? Okay. Uh, yeah, there are constructs. I mean, but it's expensive, mm -hmm. relatively. I mean, firms that serve that level of client are very sophisticated and, and they really try hard to make it super easy for their client and yeah. in exchange for that, they charge them a very Convenience. handsome fee. Yeah, okay. Convenience is expensive. Yeah. Like usual. Shocking. Shocking. <laughs> um, <laughs> on the SVB thing, um, because I think like it's obviously still happening, like it's still pretty complex. Yeah. What are the optics on, and this is just getting into some of the, uh, what I'm trying to do is get rid of just the, talking points yeah yeah right that come up and one of the talking points i think that i think i've kind of found the misconception in it which is like the taxpayers are going to pay to bail out this bank and that's not necessarily true because no. it goes through fdic correct. okay and that's funded by bank fees correct okay so that was the first one the second one was like what are the optics on uh i think it was the ceo pulled out four million <laughs> or something like uh -huh. the day before like very close to of course he did like i don't like yeah, it looks bad. Like, but so, also, if you knew, so why you think wouldn't you, you save your own wealth? So you think he pulled out? What I what I what I read slash heard was that he sold stock. He and several other executives sold stock in the, in the week preceding. I the think collapse. that's more accurate. Yes. Yeah. Um, the optics suck on that. And if I were Yellen or one of Yellen's hench people, I would absolutely claw that shit back so fast. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's this rule in Brazil, and I, I think you and I talked about it. There's this rule in Brazil where if you're an executive or on the board of a bank that fails, your own personal wealth is on the hook to reimburse depositors. They oh. actually will drive you into bankruptcy. Yeah, I, which I think is a fairly... During the great financial crisis, not a single bank failed in, in Brazil. Yeah. <sighs> not one. No, no shit. Not one. Is that weird how that happens? Yeah. So... Other people's, <laughs> other people's <laughs> money. Yeah, exactly. Which... And and part of the you know the I guess the topic of moral hazard came up early in in our conversation yeah. about like oh if if and and is let's just say my understanding of the term or how it would be applied in in this point is is that if there is a safety net then um, 
people will behave in a in a different way than if there was none. Sure. And so if you basically guarantee um, to assume if, if 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 an organization, a large organization, government guarantees that there will be no consequences mm-hmm. for risky behavior, there will be risky behavior. Yeah. I mean, there's there's two groups of there's two groups of people who have um, a link to moral hazard in, in the SVB tale of woe and misery. Mm-hmm. The first is the depositor base. And as you mentioned, the depositors were insured up to $250,000. And shortly thereafter, Yellen came in and said, look, we're going we're gonna to backstop every depositor. Yeah. We're going to make sure you all get your cash. And in a sense, that was a pretty easy thing for them to do because mm-hmm. the value of the bond portfolio mm-hmm. was so great that if they just balance sheeted that, held it to maturity, they'd get paid back and probably profit over time from that, <laughs> the, the FDIC. Yeah. So I think that was a that was a an unexpected, perhaps even unconventional, but entirely understandable decision on the part of the of Yellen and the FDIC. That's, that's up to the FDIC level, like the two hundred. That's up to no. That they level. did everything. It, right. Right. So up to the normal levels, that's expected. To go beyond it is what's unexpected. Right? Yeah, and okay. the reason the the only way there there's a rule within. Um, the FDIC that says the, the, the Treasury is allowed to do that or the FDIC is allowed to mm-hmm. do that if there's a systemic risk. So they had to declare a systemic risk before they were allowed to do that. And this, to me, makes total sense, right? Totally. Because this, it, it, like, it diffused our anxiety. As much as I would like to say that I'm like not part of the swarm of locusts that like runs to the bank, we were like, well, do we pull out some money? Like, yeah. what, like you know, we're under that threshold um, where like most of our capital is... You didn't look in the safe lately, <laughs> did oh. you? There's a bag of gold coins in there. I'm sorry, man. Sorry, I, man. Yeah, it's going to be... I converted I'm, it to gold. Yeah. I, what I wish is that when I actually... Tr- you're going to have some trouble coming to the grocery store, bud. <laughs> so, yes. so all the people that were yapping about yeah. depositors need to lose money too because there's moral hazard yeah. for leaving a billion dollars at a single bank and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I'm like, no, like no way because you can't expect every depositor to do diligence right. on a bank's investment portfolio. Right. I mean, there are credit analysts who didn't really understand like, what was sure. happening it, it, at SVB. If, if, yeah. the people, if, if, the, if the, the people with the most expertise don't understand what is happening, then how totally. does the deposit, like how do you make a deposit? You know, there's no way that, that, it, that the average depositor or even shareholder could have sort of seen it if the smartest people in the area. Yeah, and that gets to the other group. Okay. Right, the the executives and the shareholders, and to me, um, in a low interest rate environment, the only way a bank can generate significant net interest margin, which is basically the profits that a bank generates from borrowing short and lending long, yeah. right? It's that they're arbitraging the delta between how much they have to pay somebody to borrow money, depositors right. yeah. or lenders, and how much they're making by loaning money out. They, they you know, if if the spread is five percent. And they, it costs them two and a half percent to run the bank. They've got a net interest margin of two and a half percent. And if you can lever that eight or nine times, because capitalization ratios allow you to do that, then you can generate a fair amount of profits for the bank. But in order to do that in a low interest environment, you have to take a lot of risk in your bond portfolio, right. which is kind of what they did. Yeah. And they chose to take a very specific kind of risk, which was duration risk rather than credit risk. They took a very little credit risk, U.S. Treasuries and agencies, but they took duration risk. And so when interest rates moved really fast, it worked yeah. against them. Mm-hmm. And that particular risk decision totally bit him in the ass. Yeah. Okay. And and they all got wiped out. 
the shareholders got zeroed. And so the moral hazard absolutely worked there. Yeah. And I would say, okay, so the bank took the wrong risk. You know, the bank was taking risk with their investments. That's what they're supposed to do in order to generate profits for their shareholders. Yeah. And they made the wrong risk and they got eaten alive by interest rates. And it's the exact same thing that happened with the SNL crisis in the early 80s. Interest rates moved really fast by Volcker and all the savings and loans, which had been prohibited from investing in senior secured corporate debt, instead were investing in all this fucking junk shit that Milken was selling them. And mm. oh my God, it, it crushed them. And some of those guys went to jail, right? Mm. I mean, the Keating Five, they all went to jail for blowing up their SNL with taking too much risk. Interesting. But but we're, had been prevented from um, being involved in a market which was less risky. Yeah. By the rules at the time. Yeah. Interesting. Super I mean, curious uh, little wrinkle. Uh, wow. So one thing, let's, I, I just want to get on the, or stick on the FDIC thing for just a second. Um, and because if, if the, um so where if if there's enough money um in the insurance plan to cover x amount up to $250,000 for a, you know some percentage of you know when suddenly you commit to uh when suddenly the FDIC commits to backing everything that was <laughs> in, exposed yeah where does it come from then? In the sense of like, if there's Shannon like, Yellen waves her hands near like this, <laughs> and the money just appears. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and Estimate, I'm not actually it, that, that's, it, that's sort of what it is. Yeah, yeah. Estimated insured insured deposits um, of ten trillion. Yeah, that's fifty six percent of the total deposits held at FDIC insured institutions. Um. Uh, and, and that so that's fifty eight percent, and the total is seventeen trillion. So, how does if we're going to back every if everything goes down and everything's supposedly going to get backed, it's it's monopoly money, right? I mean, it's fake or what? It's a confidence uh, game. Still, and uh, is is I'm not yeah. confident that it's real. Well, you're just you're just, you're just moving the, the the confidence interval up. Okay. Right. And it was a little bit like the question you asked me. You said, well, should I be moving all my stuff to JP Morgan? Yeah. Because they're a $3 trillion bank. And it's like, yes, you could. It's where it all is anyway. That was. Sure. I mean, it was was a a a metaphorical question. And I I understood it as such. Like, is that what we should be doing as a society is creating two or three huge banks and then regulate them like utilities? Mm. Right. You say, look, this is an essential function in our in our economy. They're basically a utility, so people won't be drawn to banking anymore because it won't be the place where you could make money, make the riches of cruises. Yeah. Um, and you know, my response at the time, and I still believe it, is like, no, because that's bad for banking overall. Like, it's important to have competition in the banking system; otherwise, fees get completely out of control, and the const- and the consolidation yeah. risk is that they're literally too big to fail. Because then, if you have a utility where a third of the nation's wealth is being held, and that sucker goes down, then the government has to step in, and there is not enough money to do that. So, it's a confidence game at the federal level rather than at the regional bank level or the local bank level. And there's a, there's a form of manipulation here, like with, and I, this is a really weird example of it, but I think this is what also uh, is, it's going to happen if um, government 
governmental banking kind of coziness gets a little bit too out of hand, then you do start to see influence on what is appropriate for what you can spend your money on. And mm. I know that sounds like Orwellian and it's kind mm. of like a, a, a conspiracy theory, but I think you are seeing things like that put into place, especially in the World Economic Forum, where you're seeing like these propositions to... Um, have ranking and social status to your purchase behavior, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, greenhouse gas emissions are related to what you, you know, point system or some kind of whatever. It, it sounds like it would be useful, but then the second you have something implemented like a digital currency that's manipulated by a single house and reinforced by a single authoritarian government or something like that, you really do run the risk of... Um, something that seems kind of apocalyptic and far away or maybe um, minority reportish, like uh-huh. stopping a crime before it happens kind of yeah. deal. But to give you a really good example of this, um, I bank at Chase, obviously, and then also at a local credit union to do like day-to-day practices and, you know, whatever. Uh, it's just easier to deposit, although who knows what good that does. But the example is that they're, they're heavily influenced by the LDS church. They're owned by members uh like sitting prophets are are on the board of this local credit union when i went to california and i tried to legally buy marijuana i used the atm that's just outside so it's in the actual thing and it 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 uh declined my ATM transaction. Get the fuck out. I'm not joking. And so I called and like, oh yeah, it shows that it's a very high risk, sketchy ATM. I was like, it's probably safer than anything in California. It's a weed shop. <laughs> like, And I was like, trying to think about it. I was like, why would this go? And they're like, well, it's okay. Try it again. I tried it again. No. So it's been red marked by this bank to not to be able to purchase a substance that sure. they deem immoral. And so they had me, like, I had to go to another ATM that was, like, in one of the gnarliest neighborhoods in Compton at a 7-Eleven outside, and it went through just fine. Mm. And you're like, <laughs> So even if you take the slightly nefarious morality uh-huh. dimension out of it, the fact that there is a scoring algorithm mm-hmm. that precludes you from acting in the yes. way that you would want to act to access your money is like, holy shit. Yeah, there's like a, a moral imperative on your spending. And I think yeah, it's really yeah. easy to see in the way that we're being propositioned and uh suggested that certain behaviors are bad for the overall the overall system Uh, for for case in point aaron's taking a series of courses on um culinary medicine and some other things that are that harvard offers nutritionists and it's like a pretty clever way sure and she asked me about their nutrition course and i saw who headed up i'm not going to mention his name because he he's been responsible for some of probably the worst perpetuation of bad nutritional science for the past 20 years. But because he's a TS Harvard, it's like, what do you like? He's the guy. He's the expert. He's the expert that everybody turns to, but he is probably solely responsible for the re in, and I'll call it inflammatory response from the China study, which kind of fraudulently showed that animal protein causes cancer. Right. Anybody that goes and looks at the data, you can like if you have any kind of basic statistical analysis, you can show that it's like a fucking ridiculous study. It's like five percent of the population can do that. But well, (laughs) good point, actually. Um, And I'm not a statistician, but enough about, you know, regression to the mean that you can be like, this is ridiculous. Uh, 
he, I looked at it. She wanted to take his course. And I looked at it and I was like, man, this is really weird. And she's like, why? It's like half of the course is on climate change. Huh? Right. According nutrition causing climate change. Now you don't have to dig very far to see how terrible this narrative is, but it is a very mainstream narrative that, and I, uh, Europe is experiencing it drastically right now. Like the entire farming industry, the Dutch farming industry is being disbanded because they changed the rule set where essentially it makes it impossible to farm, um, uh, cattle, right? Mm-hmm. Like they've kind of pushed it away to soy fields and wheat fields in, mm-hmm. Uh, there's a whole conspiracy theory that kind of goes with this, but it's not, it's less theory and it's more actuality, but to get to the point of like, if the, if the signal is strong enough and it's pervasive enough, you start changing people's spending habits or rewarding them or doing this. That's where I think uh, the conglomerates of banking is like most dangerous, especially when they're very cozy with the U S government or whatever government is involved. Sure. And I, I just don't, is that realistic? Calling UBS. <laughs> is that a realistic fear, or is am I, am I also the victim of like another kind of you know propensity for shadowy right of center thinking? <laughs> I mean, I would just I'll just interject before Matthew drops the actual knowledge. I'll say, how do we feel about the European Central Bank at this moment? Yeah. And their recent discussion of, you know, negative interest rates on deposits. Well, we've been there so before, that right? Mo- so that your money that is deposited in the European Central Bank actually has an expiration date on it. Or a cost of carrying. Or a cost of carrying. So you are, you know, you're, you're uh, motivated to spend rather than save. No shit. Yeah. I didn't. Well, I mean, so from the long-term perspective, from somebody that looks at the economy, maybe like as an investor or somebody that is at least well-informed on the subject <laughs> of finance. Um, as a generalist, yeah. Yeah, as a generalist. Um, do you do you look at the big picture and kind of like, oh, what the fuck? Because from my perspective, I look at the big picture of nutrition and I go, oh, like... What we're telling people to do and uh, how we're telling them to behave is in direct opposition of probably what is good for them. Yeah, I mean, I think the nutrition world, and this is your area of expertise, not mine, but my perception of it is that it's just full of fucking charlatans that are hoping to build some kind of a revenue stream off of what I would call misinformation based on sort of dated and or quack science. So I think I think the yeah. the incentives are a little bit different there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and there's not an immediate negative feedback from no being, being wrong. No. Like you yeah. could be wrong yeah. for decades. Yeah. And still be to the financial good if uh, yeah. and, and reputational good if yeah. if if you were uh, yeah so inclined. I mean, you you just described kind of perfectly the McGovern study and then 30 years of blaming fat for disease <laughs> and cholesterol. Yeah. yeah. I know. was actually gonna um, send you a text yesterday. Because I, I was just reading something, like, like and, I, uh, and it was just going to be. Remember when eating fat made you fat? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> remember when? I just wanted to brighten your day, you yeah. know. <laughs> my my dad's a he's a surgeon and he's not a you know nutritionist mm-hmm. or any of that. But years and years ago, this is sort of eighties 
when I was first getting into sort of elite level endurance athletics and I was like, you know, dad, I read this thing where carbohydrates, you know, 90% of your diet should come from carbohydrates and you should (laughs) eat no fat at all. And he was like, God, that, and he's English, right? And so he's like, such a crock of bullshit, you know? Um, and we were talking about cholesterol and he said, even this whole obsession with cholesterol is just absolutely lunacy. It's madness. It's madness. He said, we all have varying degrees of cholesterol levels. There's no one absolute level that's good or bad. It's like, and we're obsessing on this single metric and we're going to cause for ourselves a massive reckoning. So maybe that is, that is the thing that I also recognize, um, is a problem in multiple different industries is this reductionist approach because like we kind of like set up the picture right yeah nothing is comprehensible to one person nothing is like yeah totally comprehensible at least or like whatever the the term is there so therefore we reduce it down to the one thing that we can actually understand but by reducing it we don't understand that the one expert can actually understand yeah Yeah. like because the 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 scope of expertise at the highest levels is necessarily narrow yeah then you have to um in order for that person to appear expert that the 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 it it the the energy has to be aimed very precisely or yeah. as you said in a reductionist way like yeah. let's look at you know the value of vitamin E <laughs> or the harm of it wait what <laughs> <laughs> oh i'm sorry i'm an expert in the other side of the vitamin okay. you're, the, you're the good i'm the good, good vitamin yeah, I'm, and the bad I'm, vitamin I'm, yeah exactly <laughs> that that is um I, I think and when you look at it this is kind of the thing I, i've been this is a fascinating do you follow sam harris at all oh yeah um probably one of the single most influential thinkers of my 20s yeah. like listening to him reading him and I mean, how often have you listened to a podcast and think god i wish i spoke like that dude a 100 like oh yeah the 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 accuracy in his verbiage is like i think it's a peak of human ability yeah right his lexicon is so vast and it's like I, he can grab words and just that being said he's also fairly monotone so it doesn't sound special which makes yeah. it gives it another air of yeah. supremacy um that yeah like you just respect his logic and his i think he he is the godfather of reason kind yeah, of yeah. deal especially for for my age um and then in the past three years kind of watching him break you know people have all sorts of theories on what caused this you know, is it trump <laughs> you're like no there's a meditation app i thought he does and this is what's really fascinating about it because he's he's like probably more familiar with the eastern thought than i ever will be having gone to sit in a silent ashram for years uh, and and he brought back uh, this ability but he obviously is not applying it. so i'm really curious what you mean by breaking with him because this um I have, I have a little pet theory around okay so that. i uh, my my theory b- between COVID and his inability to comprehend anything past reason is kind of what broke him. Hmm. And um, but, how, but I'm, let me let me phrase the question: mm-hmm. How does him breaking manifest? Like, what is it that you point to and say, "Yeah, um, he's, he's cracking"? How he spins. So his he he can't complete a cycle, and he, like he can't move on. He's stuck. Right. Uh, he's stuck. Okay. He's stuck on the subject of why Trump is a thing. He's stuck on 
how uh, anti-vax is a thing. He's stuck on the fact that like facts and institutions and people don't trust experts, and that and he'll he'll acknowledge some of the faults in this uh, largely generic example of being like expertise comes with a PhD. Of course not. You can find a doctor to represent anything. Obviously, there's doctors representing smoking, you know, yeah. for example. And he'll use this. So he he acknowledges, but he also says if you know if 97 percent of the leading experts say that climate change is caused by humans, you you tend to like just su- support that. And my argument, I, I mean, there's plenty of arguments against that, but. Um, He's unable to do the one thing that I think the best thinkers in the world do, which you use logic to the absolute extreme and then recognize that reason has a limit, right? And that limit is paradox. The limit actually goes back on itself. In every exercise that you do with extreme logic, it will end in paradox. And that brings you back to the only way that a human being can actually function is off a feeling. Right there has to be an there is an emotional quality for the color of T-shirt you pick, not a reason. Right there might be a justification, but that is what breaks most hyperlogical people. And I think, I think with seeing the world, okay, so let's say he's right in all his data, correct, hundred percent. Like he, if we take what he knows about whatever subject he's talking about, let's use uh, the the pandemic for instance. Right, the data says that we should all get vaccines. That's what the data says. Intuition says elsewhere, right? Intuition says opposite, actually. The intuition says, actually, nature loves variety. And therefore, if I feel like I can beat the odds of this thing, I need to be the one that actually stays a variable, right? Because if all people do one thing, that is the worst decision that anybody can do. That's what causes these mass extinctions, essentially, or or, are homogenization of action or homogenization of application. And so um, this is the part that I see him cracking on. Hmm. Um, and this is where it gets kind of fascinating. I mean, we talked about it a little bit. I, I was getting angry listening to him because it was so frustrating that he couldn't shake out when I know he's like probably one of the most intelligent people that I you know would ever be exposed to. And what's funny is what it made me stop and realize is that my getting angry was based off of a reflection of my limits of reason with trying to reason with him. (laughs) And when I just reflected the fact that he needs to feel things out and use intuition and that would be the fix and that made me feel better. It's also what he's frustrated in is a reflection of the thing that he needs to fix. Like he is Trump in intellectual form. As asinine as that sounds, he is an egomaniac, well, right? He is just hidden in intellectualism. He's yeah. hidden in a false sense of humbleness because he owns a meditation app. But in reality, nobody can tell him anything because he has the data. And that is the start of the, yeah. the spiral. And so um, the inability to recognize his own narcissism becomes present when he can only recognize somebody else's narcissism. Hmm. Paradox. It's interesting. That's my personal thought on it, but also a fascinating case study of why um, the greatest philosophers and thinkers, the Greeks, the, you know, the, the Stoics, um, even original Zen thinkers, um, the Sufis, they all come back to this like limit of logic, limit of reason. And it it always comes back to, we got to feel it out and that'll be the answer. (laughs) How do you feel? How do you feel? Tell me your feelings. (laughs) I'm frustrated. 
<laughs> and then that idea taken to its extreme puts you in a position where your feelings are more important, are the most important for decision-making and governance, mm-hmm. um, which I think is also a spiral. Yes. It, it, like you break there also. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. It's It's kind of... Perhaps this is just a little bit too simple, but there is a blend here that makes things happen, right? There's a, there's a logic is obviously useful. <laughs> and then it obviously is a dead end at some point. And feeling and intuition become this like, I, I would say, I would call intuition this um, blend of reason and feeling. I think that's like the pinnacle of it, right? Because you have a couple models in your head that you're working off of. Maybe it's experiential data, right? I've done this this many times and it's worked out. And then you have this gut feeling, which things are like spider sensey are going off and you're not 100% listening to it being like, you know what? The moon is in retrograde <laughs> and I'm going to you yeah. know, go this way. You're, you're, you're going, okay, I've got a sense and my logic and maybe this is the time that I sell off 50% of my equity in this company because you know we said that this is the trigger, logical trigger, big bank crashes. But intuition says we're going to act like this. Now, intuition and that's in that, in that moment, intuition would have counseled against acting. How so? Because there was nothing objectively that we could point to aside from the fact that we had set a trigger to encourage us to act. Don't you think that was the intuition, though? Like the intuition was to ha- to set was a to trigger. set the trigger. Yeah. yeah. Like well, so, one thing because when... in the moment, the intuition, like in the moment, you can't recognize it, but intuition says, "Here's a threshold. As long as I make sure that this is like the red light goes off when I need to, I that was the intuition. Now I don't need to think. I just act. Maybe. I mean, it 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 felt. <laughs> yeah, I felt it. I felt. It felt at the time like an entirely logical discussion because there were there were no exogenous pressures that were catalyzing an emotional response to the financial reality. We were just mm-hmm. talking about, okay, what might this look like? And yeah, there were some stirrings over here in the corner and maybe our collective experience in the markets identified those stirrings as something more than we were cognitively recognizing. Mm. That's totally possible, in which case... You know, Gladwell's argument would be that it is your collective experience, your 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 experience that creates those feelings yeah. of intuition. Yeah, I mean, that, that is getting into like the nature of reality, which is yeah perfect. But yeah, I thought one thing in, in our pr- offline discussion about that that was pretty fascinating was when you said, "Look, if we hadn't set, you know, established this." If this happens in the future, trigger. Yeah. If we hadn't said that, we would have still been in the room trying to talk ourselves out of yeah, it. Yeah, because, because the mantra in investing is you can't time the markets. Fascinating. I mean, the mantra in investing is you can't time the markets. Yeah. Right? I mean, that is just like, um, the reason that is bedrock is that the people who try to time the markets or successfully time the markets for some period of time inevitably blow up if yeah. they're market timers. Yeah. Because... You're going to be wrong at some point, yeah. right? And so the, that's the mantra. And since that's the tape that's sort of playing in the back of your head all the time, you can't on the marks, then you do spend much more of your time talking yourself out of acting 
then you do talking yourself into acting, particularly as an advisor, because you have clients who are freaking out and your job is to basically coach them through those moments of freaking out so they're not making emotional decisions, right? That's like, that's the mantra. When I was, had some money in the market, I would have hated to be my financial advisor. (laughs) (laughs) Which is why you got a financial advisor. Well, because otherwise you are your financial advisor. Well, that's true. Uh, But I would have hated to be the guy who had to call sure. me every, yeah. I mean, Jason, he was ama- he was fantastic. Patient. He, patient, helped me, you know, <laughs> get, you know, my curtains are still hanging. I'm not hanging from them, you know, or whatever. But it, but, but it's, it's, that is also part of the, you know, the financial sort of advisor or guide's job is to like, um, manage the emotion of others yeah. without being affected by said emotion to a large degree. And it's complicated because there are some perverse incentives around encouraging people to stay in the market. There are some perverse incentives around the whole sort of the notion of outsourcing investment decisions to a third party, be they an advisor or a mutual fund or whatever. Um, But yeah, it's, it's, I mean, you raise such an interesting question. I would ask this because I think, because we (laughs) moved on. Um, how do you see Sam Harris as an, as a, as an example I wanted of to get recent? Back. Thank yeah. You. yeah, so um, I, I was introduced to him later later than you. Um, but I have a lot of friends who listen to him, mm-hmm. I would say, regularly but inconsistently. Right? Okay. They sort of think of him as a, as a particularly insightful, particularly yeah. reasonable person who can argue a difficult point of view fairly easily. Um, but what I've noticed in the last three years, and this is why I was interested about your time stamping of him breaking, mm-hmm. is that he, his audience has bifurcated. Yes. And that five years ago, the friends I had who really thought, really thought well of him were mostly conservative thinkers who felt like he was sort of poking at the liberals. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And Which, I th- he kind of came up that way to be, to, to be fair. He did. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think they sort of felt like here's our champion. Here's our logical champion yeah. who is able to articulate a point of view that we have sometimes a hard time articulating and he's yes. doing it masterfully yeah. go. And then he turned on Trump. Yeah. He turned on, um, Cov- Cov- COVID, Covidians, COVID, uh, all of it. Anti-vaxxers. Right. Yeah. And I think that the politicization of those two conversations resulted in many people saying, oh, fucking he lost his way. Not necessarily because he lost his way, but because he was suddenly articulating a point of view that contradicted what they believed in. And I'm super fascinated by the Overton window. You know what that is? Uh-huh, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I think the Overton window has just shifted right on everything. And so Sam Harris, five years ago, would have been considered absolutely But now it's shoved him over here. It's shoved him over there. And so all the people who might have really resonated with his argument around fact vaccine, uh-huh. right? For example, they're like, fuck that man. This is a fascinating, but I have a couple things on that. And I'm really glad we came back to it. Cause this is, um, the, the first thing is that I think you're a hundred percent correct. Um, he has sold himself into no party. Yeah. Which is very, proudly. Da- very dangerous ground. <laughs> Weirdly and proudly, but he is also not center. Yeah. This is anymore. Always, anymore. This is always fascinating. Of his me. own doing or the I think, or, or the cultural his shift own, of this like He would say it's not of his window. doing. It was not an intentional shift. That's what he has said. Okay. I, I would say he's admitted the opposite. 
Ah, interesting. Because I would say that he's avoiding audience capture. Like, he is avoiding, yes. Right, he is. so like when people say... Okay, I, see, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah so yeah. when people say... And he's, he said this, like when people come after me by like saying like, no, you shouldn't say those things that's not actually accurate about Trump, he doubles down. Right, he does the opposite of what his, huh. his audience base. And the same thing with the vaccine, he doubled down. And this is kind of like some form of intellectual dishonesty. Um, do you want something super fascinating? And it might not make total sense, but other people that would listen to this... Um, I would tell you exactly who he is and what he's doing because I've read his human design chart <laughs> and he's actually a five one generator, which means he's a heretic. We're the same design, which is a, why I resonate and B why I understand where he's going. But five ones have to be very practical right there. Heretic investigator. That's their subconscious and conscious draw towards a subject is I need to do subconscious research on this thing so that a heretic is a teacher of sorts yeah. but they split they bifurcate an audience i do the same thing people fucking hate me or they love <laughs> me depending on their exposure to me yeah. so i i don't need to change i need to remain practical and control my exposure to people that becomes kind of where he goes wrong what happens though in this system when you are not quote unquote not self is that you become deeply frustrated and then it, it's like kind of like a self-fulfilling cycle like this this that it reinforces kind of your worst behavior and if you look at the world most people are not selfed i would say most people are not living in harmony with how their body and their mind are supposed to work and that, that might be um where he was at his best i think he was really hitting his stride living in this um, teaching people and learning deeply about subjects and then communicating them expertly mm. and taking very concept. Uh, this has to do with his 60, what they call the 61 channel, which in like, there's a lot of different methodologies he uses, but this has to do with like clarity on complex topics. He's able to translate oh, yeah, yeah, them yeah, yeah. better than anybody. Yeah. And when that goes south, he spins. Interesting. So he gets on this knot. He can't get over it. He can't get over Trump. If nothing else, like, don't get me wrong. Trump is one of the worst human beings, uh, but he's also a character. Like, he's, it's, I think we deserve him. Like, I'm like, I think we're in like full fledged, like, yeah, of course he's, of course we get the guy who treats the world like a reality show. We treat the world like a reality show, yeah. you know? The next, you know, we yeah. treated COVID like it was some kind of fucking contest. Yeah. You know, it, it might have been like MTV Real World. You wouldn't have known the difference with how ridiculous everybody got in acting. And so it just makes sense to me. And I think with him, I think maybe it was just like a justification, but it made me immediately understand kind of like, oh, okay, he's put himself in this predicament and now it's just going to exacerbate until he comes back to center and does his thing. And maybe getting off Twitter was probably one of the best things he could do. <laughs> probably a lesson for all of us. You know, the CEO of Al Jazeera was interviewed years ago and I remember him saying, you know, if, if, if the Arab street thinks that I'm a lapdog for American foreign policy, mm -hmm. And if the Western world yeah. thinks I'm a mouthpiece for the terrorists of the Arab world, then I'm probably doing it just about right. Because <laughs> you're, you're, you're like in the center. Yeah. But this always, this always drove me crazy about people 
uh, admitting that they were right or left, yeah. right? What you're saying is that you're not centered, you're not balanced, yeah. right? The, the the appropriate opinion of everything is a balanced viewpoint. It's seeing both sides from a place where you're not actually leaning. Leaning people spin, and spinning people are untrustworthy. Like that, it's just the nature of revolution. You're like, you're just like it just doesn't make any sense to me. But I, I'll digress a little bit. <laughs> I, I think that is not digression at all. It's, like, it's a weird. He's a great. I, it was not a digression until you got to channel sixty one. Oh right, yeah, that's. <laughs> and then I was like, well. <laughs> You gotta have cable for that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, another another. Okay, so to, to get, um, we talked a little bit about energy, and people who like listen to the podcast will know we go off on this all the time. Sure. It's like fucking hilarious to yeah. us. We've gotten so talk about like people getting mad at us. People think we have lost our minds because we entertain the idea of human design, right? It's it's ridiculous. But to go a little bit further in the weeds and piss people off, he has an undefined solar plexus, right? So undefined solar plexus, Tim Harris, not bad or good. It just means that he can't control the energy or the circuitry. It doesn't connect correctly. He's not designed to do that. So when he is confronted, he actually does not handle it well, hmm. right? He stutters. So when you watch him confronted with something that he has not uh, pre-prepared, spend some time thinking. About yeah, it. yeah, it, it really it, catches it allowed him himself time to. The uh, Lex Friedman podcast was a great example of this because Lex um, is a fairly balanced individual, although I'm, he's not my favorite. When he, I lo he always loves to bring people back to loving themes, right? Which is like he just, hey Sam, but have you looked at it through like this? You know, like in meditation, we'd be like, have you meditated on love? You know, and and that's not to say that you are just all peace and loving. It's like you're bringing an energy to this thought. Yeah. The energy is a positive, attractive one where you try to use compassion and comprehension of somebody's circumstances in order to understand their path. And that usually alleviates all frustration and pain. You can do it with our campers outside. You know, like all you have to do is just try to talk to one. If I, if I cared, I don't. But if I did, I would go outside and I'd be like, tell me how you grew up. Tell me, you know, like what, what's your, what got you here? And I guarantee after about 15 minutes, I would feel differently. Um, and Lex did this with Sam and he just, and it like broke him a little bit. And you're like, come on, man. You could hear the buzzing. You could hear the, the, <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of interesting to be fair. He's, I still, pre I think he's like, one of the most phenomenal thinkers. And I, I don't like to criticize him like I'm better than, I like to look at what he's doing as an example of kind of like what the best of us are are likely to experience. Uh, and he's just doing it in public. And so it's like, man, we're all susceptible to these same cognitive hmm. traps. And I think, uh, and maybe emotional trap, cognitive and emotional traps. So it's it's really interesting, I think, as an example for, where thinking goes south to some degree. But um, I wonder if he's expressed any of his opinions on the banking system, because I would listen to that. <laughs> I've not I've not heard of, of him doing that, but uh, it would be uh, interesting. Yeah, it's kind of, yeah, I don't know. I don't know, where do we go from here? I, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I, I just, you know, uh, thinking of podcaster, you know, I, I had some of his in the library deleted it i had some of friedman stuff in my library recently and i was like nah i deleted this stuff and then uh, you know of all fucking things the one person that like my most hated author 
podcaster, mm-hmm. thinker. Tim Ferriss. Just fucking that, redeemed right? himself. Yeah, oh, of course Jesus it is. Christ, Dude, you nailed joking. it. I was like, <laughs> I want that motherfucker on our podcast. In fact, mm. I would I would even, you know. What did it but, for you? You know, um, I, I guess uh, he must have uh, undertaken some heroic journeys, let's say. He has, yeah. And um, did he do it in four hours, though? See, that's exactly what, a, a, apparently, it's the time delineations that guarantee or confer success um, are no longer part of his life. The four-hour spiritual experience. <laughs> See, exactly. The four-hour hero's journey. Yeah. I don't think that's what he meant. I did. I, yeah. But, and it's actually been fascinating because when you said, you know, Sam's, you know, he's doing all of his sort of journey in public. Mm-hmm. It appears, and I haven't, you know, I, I was anti for a long time and stopped listening. And then uh, Blair has, like, turned me on to a couple. You know, we drive back and forth a lot. And, and, a, and a, a couple of them, not necessarily even recently, but with sometime within the last two years mm-hmm. or so or even three, I'm like, oh, my God. The de- he appear- it's almost as if he walked into a field and was hit by lightning. Yeah. And had to re-examine some of these, you know, pet ideas that turned into formulas that became commerce that also, you know, put him into a position where he had to confront his own sort of well-being and, and um, I don't know, just spiritual uh, happiness or comfort. And has, you know, obviously had some difficult times on some of these journeys. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, we are not fixed. <laughs> Shocking. And so I, I, I kind of feel, I'm just like, you know, I have watched Mr. Harris and his confrontation with Mr. Weinstein and, mm-hmm. you know, the... Uh, you know, I had, like I said, I got it rid of it from the library. I gave up. Mm-hmm. Um but maybe I shouldn't, you know, maybe there's a, you know, know, some grace should be extended to his path. Although he has set very, very narrow limits, Mm -hmm. um, guardrails on that path. It's very hard to listen to, to be honest. Like it's hard to listen to somebody that it was, it was hard to listen to the Kanye podcast, you know, in the same, in the same regard where you're like, someone cannot take in any feedback. And I think that's what pains me. Right. When you have people who are like, I'm here to help. And you're just like resistant. That being said, this is also why I turned. I I recently was like, delete, 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 delete. Because one thing that I noticed, and this kind of comes back to our main subject, is like all these fucking people are incestuous. Right. Like Brett goes on Sam. Sam goes on Joe's. Joe's goes on Lex. Lex goes. And you're like, oh, my God, it's no different with VCs. It's no different than Wall Street. It's no different with politicians. It's no different with celebrities. We create these, like, little fucking groups that represent the entirety of humanity. And they're just little pockets of, like, the same people arguing or agreeing. And if I find if it's, like, an industry, everybody agrees. And those are our experts to some degree. And the second somebody goes off the rails, they're an enemy to the industry. And I think the best way to put it is like looking how Wall Street looks at Silicon Valley is a really good way to look at both of them. Right. (laughs) 
right? Look at Wall Street through Silicon Valley and look at Silicon Valley through Wall Street. And you're like, it seems to me, and this is on a totally amateur, I don't understand the industry even remotely to be like, there is some beef there about, it seems like Wall Street does not like technology. And it seems like Silicon Valley, for lack of a better term, has an undefined ego and really tries to prove itself. (laughs) Because it's run by a bunch of young men who spent a lot of time in their basement as kids. (laughs) Is, Is that still the case? No, it's a little bit of a myth, but I think the id of sun, that's the id of, of Silicon Valley for okay. sure. Okay, yeah, th- there I would have oh, to agree, because I, I feel like some of those kids grew up, and yeah, I mean, uh, th- th- that's all. I, I, had, I had nothing more, like, some of them didn't. One of the things we just, touched on five years ago now was this notion of the rarity of independent thought. Yeah. <laughs> And I think in industries that are intensely self-reaffirming, mm. like finance, like technology, like medicine, mm. um, the capacity for independent thought becomes even even more rare. And as a result, it becomes branded as heretical, which is to your point, right? You you are branded as an outsider, um, which you know in finance can work in your in your benefit, right? If you have if you truly have the capacity for independent thought, and you and you t- pair that with the analytical capacity to evaluate reality. Mm-hmm. That's where enormous profits lie as an investor. Oh, uh, I see. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Well, because you're you're kind of banking on, I think, a subtle fact about uh, evolutionary theory in anything, like um, in technology or or science uh, all of these are uh, evolutions of some sort they're mutations that happen and uh, like we were talking before about like the nature of a mutation and how it works it's never nice and pleasant right galileo was a mutation in the sequence and he, he kind of and th- this is where it gets even weirder because i think people use this example as in like you know listen to the anti-vaxxer because galileo and you're like no that that's not that's not how that works that's not the same thing (laughs) (laughs) right that's like yeah he was talking against the powers that be and you're like yeah but he was right and he had evidence (laughs) so in the old days this would have somehow been a galileo anti was an (laughs) anti-vaxxer url but i think maybe it needs to be a (laughs) t-shirt well but but, but, i mean i want to i want to explore that thought a little bit more because i think it's um it has become a mark of pride, effectively, mm-hmm. these days to to take a, a, a controversial stance on mm-hmm. what might be perceived as received wisdom. And just to get back a little bit to what Sam Harris was saying is without without that pairing of expertise, it just becomes an opinion. Right. And, you know, on on Wall Street, the reason that it works that way, the, re- the reason that that is an opportunity is because if everybody agrees on something, then they're all taking one side of the trade. Yes. And the only thing that can happen is that the trade unwinds. It's homogenous. Yeah, you have to. You, yeah, but, exactly. But being able to yeah. see that and take, be willing to take the other side of the trade and to be wrong mm-hmm. for some period of time and not lose your conviction and to eventually be proven right. That's just a very rare, it's a very rare characteristic set. Um, and I, I don't know how that works in Silicon Valley. That that's not my area of expertise at all. But what I see is that the lemming-like behavior among venture capitalists feeding yes. a, okay. um, 
a cycle of replication effectively in Silicon a, Valley. Where the id of this whole industry or idea is heretical or was. Yeah. It was, you know, it was revolutionary. It was anti. Being a venture capitalist. No. Oh. Being involved in tech. And, oh, yeah. And, and, and the same thing. Right? But I don't. Uh, I see what you're saying. But, yeah. but I think it became, it, it became the thing it originated to oppose. Because technology has always been promised to make our life easier, more convenient, cheaper, less work, more play. And it has never provided any of those things. Yeah. We work more hours. Yeah. We have less time. We spend more money. We have more technology. Yeah. If you were going to do a very concise study on like a correlation between technology, our attention, and our time, you have a graph that like, and, and our cost of living, right? Like everything just goes up all the time. Um, one thing that you pointed out that I think is fascinating, which might be probably, I mean, I'm going to have to think about it a little longer because so this is just, but you're essentially, um, why it's okay for that process is because it's, uh, in a contained, um, it's in a closed system, right? And, and the yeah, yeah, in, yeah, yeah. And the majority of this happens, but what has really happened with technology is technology has opened the system. And this um, homogenization now has turned into shorting anything and everything becomes a 50-50 hmm. just based off of opinion. This is probably where Sam Harris is very correct when he's like, the noise is not accurate, right? The the opinions of like, this is bad, that's good. That's, uh, I would say an anti-vaxxer is shorting a pharmaceutical company essentially publicly, right? <laughs> They should, they should. They should do that. Are, they should put their money right behind their perspective and are, be like... I would say if they didn't have those liability waivers and all of that legal infrastructure, <laughs> I'd say it's a fair game. <laughs> but I, I agree with you. It's like, but, but weirdly, there was this safety net created yeah. <laughs> that encouraged risky behavior well, I, <laughs> by said players. For sure. I, and I think I th I'm, I'm kind of in the... I'm still, for some reason, really in the middle with like... I disagree with most medical advancements, not just like vaccines and drugs. Most medical, let's talk about Ozempic, for example. Right? Ozempic will be the highest selling drug of all time because it has a side effect for off label use for weight loss. Yeah. Right? But yeah. what they're not recognizing is that, you know, the, the study that cleared it through the FDA was like a six week study on kids with diabetes who all had like remarkable weight loss, right? No long term data. The long-term data is starting to look like actually it depletes serotonin uptake. It has God, really horrifying. bad, really, really bad muscle wasting properties to its weight loss. And you're starting to see uh, depression and suicidal ideation in the people that take it for longer than like a year or two. And this is the, it's already going. It's gone. Like it's, it's like on a train yeah, and it, yeah. because people aren't dying from it. But what happens when they start killing themselves from it? it this is just Can like. Can I just yeah. say, uh -huh. who cares? Yeah, they're not murdering people. I, um, I mean, just to throw a little dev devil's advocacy in there. I mean, there. that's the fentanyl argument, right? Like, eh, it takes too long. No, no, I mean, like that's the like. Don't solve the fentanyl problem; it solves itself. 
because it's taking users that are in a certain genre and you're like and i'm not i'm not condoning it or i'm just saying that that's the that's the argument about like what why make so that's the top down class war? I'm talking about bottom up class <laughs> war. <laughs> so as, as a purely sort of interesting anecdote to the fentanyl thing, mm -hmm. Mexico does not have a fentanyl crisis. No, of course not. Because the cartels, cartels have made it very clear that yeah. they will not cut that product with fentanyl for 100%. sale in Mexico. That is a yeah, exactly. That is a that is a stateside problem. Yep. But our politicians, our experts blame the cartels for totally. that cutting. But it's a completely incorrect, right? And yeah, it's totally incorrect. I mean, in, in Mexico, they say over and over again, we don't have a drug problem. You guys have a drug problem. It's a U.S. drug problem. It's not a Mexican drug problem. I would agree with them. Honestly. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, it's, it's so, it's self-evidently true. Yeah. If the demand were not there, the cartels would not be there. And the other side of this is, and I know that you guys yeah. probably think a lot about this, but um, <laughs> nobody in the system, other than the parents of addicted or dead children, have any desire to stop the drug trade. Nobody. No, uh, of course The not. U.S. government loves it because yeah. they give money to Mexico, and I think it's 80% of every dollar has to be repatriated to buy U.S. military equipment. Yeah. So it's a way to pad the budgets of the military contractors' lobbyists without having it show up on the Pentagon budget. One, the Mexican government loves it because 10% of every dollar goes into a slush fund. Whoa, whoa, whoa. T -t -t uh, uh, I'm old. My heart is... I need my popcorn. I need my... <laughs> <laughs> Would you run that by me again <laughs> about it's an intense money, um, I, I'm ignorant here. U.S. dollars committed to the war on drugs in Mexico, 80% of that. This is what I was told. Okay. So I befriended a guy who's a retired special forces commandante whose last job posting was fighting cartels. And there are absolutely people in the Mexican government who are committed to that project because they believe that as a um, sort of, as a very, very powerful counterbalance to the Mexican government, the cartels represent a threat to civil society, okay? But mm. that's a minority perspective broadly because the law enforcement in Mexico has been so corrupted by cartel money. Okay, yeah. But what he told me was that the Mexican government doesn't have any interest in stopping the drug trade. Yeah. Anyway, he said was that for every dollar of U.S. aid that goes to Mexico to fight the drug war, 80% mm -hmm. of it has to be used to buy equipment from, from the U.S. Raytheon. They love it. 10% yeah. okay. of it goes into a government slush fund. They can yeah. do whatever they want with it. And 10% of it has to be accounted for, you know, personnel and transport and everything else that's associated with the units that are responsible for fighting the cartels so the mexican government doesn't really want to end it and by virtue of that the u.s government doesn't really want to end it either because it's getting arms yeah sales. arms sales yeah the cartels clearly don't want it to end they love the war on drugs because it of jacks course. the price of the drugs yeah. there's a high cost to it but it's billions and billions of dollars of revenue to them broadly speaking the communities in which the cartels operate broadly speaking they don't want it to end because the federal government in Mexico is quite poor. Tax revenues are very low. So there's not much reach that the federal government has to provide things like police, water sanitation, you know, stuff like that. And so often the cartel will step in to the breach and deliver those services for these communities. Now there's yeah. a cost to it, 
but it's better than having nothing. And so very broadly speaking, the communities are sort of okay with it because the money sloshes through the communities. And the tourists go to Mexico and they get lots of good drugs and it's not very expensive. And so they're sort of okay with that. And they're not cut with fentanyl. They're not cut with fentanyl. So it's like his, his description of it to me was that the cartels want equilibrio, equilibrium, mm. because everything's in stasis. Everything sort of is okay. The, the, the cartels, now, now when, when violence erupts in Mexico, it's almost always cartel and cartel, and it's because there's been a transition of power at the top of one of the cartels, and a rival cartel sees an opening to capture market share. And the way they capture market share is through violence. Much like governments. Sure. I mean, you could look at Russia, Ukraine. What, sure. Like, it's all, it's all the same game. Right, it's 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 just being played out by different banners and um, like uh, it's it it looks identical to me, and I think that's except for I can probably come up with more examples of the uh, the 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 uh, cartels being humble than the U.S. government. Right, the cartel accidentally kills people. They pull us to the people that are responsible. We're very sorry. Yeah. You know, wasn't like, that fascinating? It's fascinating. But we blow up by drone a family after we claim we killed a major terrorist. Ends up being like a father of eight or something. And yeah. no, oh, Shit. nobody says anything. Nobody takes responsibility. Nobody take. You're like, yeah. Uh, this. I. I mean, I said this the other day, and I was kind of joking, but I was like, I guess my like. I just want it when I grow up. I want to be too big to fail, and by that I mean too big to take responsibility. Like that's, it's essentially what we're fucking looking at. Um, well, so you get big enough, you do everything you do is right. Well, there is a point wow. where your wealth insulates you from your own idiocy, the consequences yes. of your own behavior, and we are certainly seeing that with the ultra wealthy today. They can, mm-hmm. do you know, they they can buy a social media platform for $42 billion and, and not have it really affect them very much. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Which has been fascinating to watch. Totally you fascinating. Know, like, I, I don't know what I'm looking at when I see that other than like somebody who fear, all the things that he fears are probably logical and then his actions kind of display what he fears. Huh. Right? Like um, the behavior, how he... and. Obviously, like, I don't know what I'm talking about, but how he behaves on Twitter is that of an addict. Interesting. It's somebody who can't control their behavior from the machine that's amplifying their behavior, which is what he's afraid of and what he talks about with AI. But yeah, yeah. the algorithms on Twitter are AI. They're incentivizing they and de-incentivizing. And therefore, like, even though he might have his hand on the trigger, it's like Twitter is his fentanyl. <laughs> it's like fascinating and it's like man i can't think of another person that you have kind of like more hope for who is like you know really tried to do solve hard problems yeah although i have i have a problem with billionaires trying to escape into space i think it's a fucking ridiculous premise yeah maybe not but you know it kind of where there's that trope you know why don't you spend all that money trying to make it yeah better here (laughs) well because then the poor would win yeah right yeah i i get like that is the that seems the war that that's the real class warfare right like that's the real war there's no real war on drugs there's no there but there is a class war going on and it it doesn't have to do with race um sometimes it has to do with like where you're from and what you believe but really it just has to do with like poor and rich it's like those are the distinctions that are most identifiable um, and it, that's the power, no power, the say, no say. Yeah. Um, 
What I th- I just got to mm-hmm. before we lose track of Mr. Musk here and oh oh yeah please um, uh, him buying Twitter a cool yeah well, sure you, you go got, for it you got the money private company buy it do what you want with it yeah, yeah. get your investor from what it doesn't like that's <laughs> thought it was the american dream anyway um <laughs> but but with all of the files let's just say of like i think the best part of the purchase is the bright light shown into dark corners yeah yeah mm-hmm. it is also the most frustrating part because nothing is changing <laughs> well n- n- nothing is changing and n- and no one can be held accountable yeah and no one is working to like everybody's identified like this horrific yeah. abuse of public trust mm-hmm. and fucking crickets not a word that is okay so i'm I'm, and, re- I'm gonna provoke you for a second yeah why is it okay for musk to buy and do whatever he wants but then when the predecessor owners owned it it's a violation of public trust um why can't you just say well they could do whatever the fuck they wanted with it too they they absolutely could but not in collusion with people who are in governance who are supposedly neutral ah that's the part yeah yeah, that's the part and i don't you know they they absolutely had the right to run the company uh however they wanted and to bow to pressure from whatever source yeah whatever i think i totally agree with this this is interesting yeah to because they 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 absolutely had the freedom which also meant they were free to refuse and didn't whether that's a commercial play and it's for profit you know i don't i don't the motivation doesn't doesn't it's opaque uh, for sure. Yeah, I don't, I don't care about the the, the 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 why of it, but it is that um, people in you know elected or bureau, you know positions or in bureaucratic positions that are unassailable, trying uh, pressuring the private company to uh, to steer narratives. Um, that support their positions mm-hmm. when they are ostensibly supposed to be neutral mm-hmm. and also are uh, that they themselves can't do this because there's this little part of the Bill of Rights and Constitution which prevents them from acting in this way. And granted, the, the you know, governments will act through surrogates all they want i mean you know and and uh, in order to distance themselves uh militarily obviously you have the, the wagner group you the, i mean the, the french have their own legion you know blah 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 <laughs> yeah. blah but um you know with, the with US outstanding get, uniforms get, oh. <laughs> like the brat <laughs> little, and, ca- little kp hats are just <laughs> very <yeah>. stylish <laughs> and and for all the you know Jokes about <clears throat> French rifle for sale, you know, <laughs> never fired, it only dropped once. Um, <laughs> for, for all of those jokes and about we saved your asses, blah, 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 there's, uh, uh, yeah, when I was there, um, I met a number of uh, fairly serious individuals. And then if you just look at the actions of the Legion, you're like, yeah, they're, they're, they're they, highly active. Yeah, yeah. And uh, all the firearm studies, you know, uh, um, ballistics and that kind of thing back in the day. Strasbourg tests, that whole thing. They got no problem killing goats. <laughs> anyway, so, so then I would say, so, so the, you know, the French have a legion and 
<clears throat> Mr. Putin has his little organization. And we have Halliburton. And, and we, well, no, we have, <laughs> we have social media. Oh, okay. <laughs> Fair. Right. And, yeah. and, it, and, and it is far more powerful than any of those other groups. For sure. Yeah. Less, less overtly bloody. Um, and so this, and, and, and I, and it, so I, I think the fact that um, this has been exposed is interesting. What I find even more interesting is the lack of action, mm-hmm. and is the sense of hopelessness on a societal level, like on a public level, of like, fuck, this happened, and we can do nothing. This is uh, on on this. This is kind of brings us back to the like medium point on expertise because I don't. I think it was kind of known subconsciously that there was influence happening this entire time, right? Yeah, 100%. I mean, wh- where I go with this, it's like who fucking cares? I mean, and I, I don't mean that cavalierly. Yeah, I mean like what's the number what's the percentage of people who spend time on twitter relative to the population it's a really 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 small number right and yet they are able to amplify their own voices in actual conversation with people that when the opinion is formed the and and then rebroadcast yeah. by the people who are there but, and it's and it, and let's just say it's not just and you couldn't say that it's just Twitter. Well, that's what I was going to say. Because there's every yeah. other fucking social yeah, media platform was... Was on um, that email list. Was on yeah. the email list. Yeah. There were there were players. There were people um, uh, very... Even Pinterest. Like, subversively get a, placed. Get a fucking in, cooking recipe and I have to be influenced by our government. It, <laughs> I mean... This, I mean, what I, this is, I'm going to just turn this on myself for a second, but having been in Mexico for the last two years, I find myself curiously disinterested in this whole conversation. And it feels so fucking good oh, yeah, to, be, to be just like, wow, I'm not wrapped around that particular, particular axle. Which is amazing. Cool. Yeah. On, uh, and, 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 Which and, probably comes back to the mental health of Elon Musk that we originally talked about. Like, you're, you know what, like, this is it. Like, you, you being detached and then noticing the poison even in the subject is fascinating yeah but also it's quite um for me that's a that's a wonderful individual position to take but it's not functional but it, for a society well, well, let's, it's let's, not let's, functional for a society and, and most important it's not functional for the future of this society and if we start looking at people who don't give a fuck about free speech well there ain't gonna be no free speech but we no can that's, narrow, that's, that's narrow it that's, a little bit that's not what i was saying it's not i'm that not I'm, saying Oh, sorry. I'm not saying that you don't give a fuck. I'm just saying that functional on a societal level and the evolution of said, the growth of said society or yeah. the progression of said society but, is that we, we are um, the, the, I just. Uh, and so, so if I can, if I yeah, can distill yeah. this, what, what, um, what troubles you, what vexes you <laughs> is that there is a, the, a perception me. of Twitter being a platform for free speech. Oh, No. But I, but the practical application of it is that it's a highly it, influential, it highly influenced. Yeah. I, I I can't disagree with what you're saying except for the part where I think it's a platform for that ostensibly should be for free speech. No, no, the, I don't give the, a fuck per, one way or the, the other. The perception is that it is. Um, 
I think the perce- maybe, maybe that is what is maybe it is the perception that I see as affecting actual behavior. I just think the fact that so many people are complaining about my second right, my second amendment rights are being violated because I'm being blocked on Twitter. It's like I think they f- they feel like it should be or it, it actually is supposed man, to be. Man, if your second amendment rights oh, were being sorry, for, sorry, first amendment. <laughs> Apologies. Blocked by <laughs> Mexico on Twitter. We have it's hey, time for revolution, but, sorry, man. That is not far from it. Right, like expressing certain ideas like that, like your appreciation of the Second Amendment rights, is something that was altered. Yeah. So you're talking about something, um, and maybe this is. I wanted to bring it back to a subject that's less convoluted and probably less hot than like something like uh, free speech or something. But (laughs) but use Twitter, use these arms, these these uh, magnification uh, tools that we have, and bring it back to um, the GameStop thing that happened in finance right so like i i appreciate your separation from this because i'm also trying to hone myself to be separate from the influence but it's it's taking a while because we use the platform multiple platforms for broadcasting our very small business interest yeah it's like my it means nothing to most people but to us it's like the difference between you know us being able to like develop more so for us, we need to like use it, but there's also this inherent poison that's attached to it. And I'm fascinated by the poison because I see it amplified everywhere. So if you take something like you're interested in finance, it's like integral to your being. Yeah. And this tool circumvents the reality and the nature that you are an expert. Would you be more inclined to have, uh, maybe you would understand why people give a fuck. Does that make sense? Yeah. Do you, uh, what did happen with the GameStop thing? If you followed that, I followed it a little bit um, enough enough to have just sort of <laughs> rolled my eyes and just and God fucking there are so many people who are so easily suckered. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> I mean, I, I, and name your topic. Name your topic. This, I mean, this I think is the bigger. This is the meta view. It's like I could also give a shit less about Twitter. And I also don't care about people saying that meat is bad for you. Think meat is bad for you. I will still eat it because I have a very good understanding of nutrition yeah, yeah. and I want more. Like yeah. I, yeah, eat fucking impossible meat. That shit is garbage. <laughs> eat it, eat it. And it's, it's again, it's a fentanyl problem, it's the worst. right? The, the people who are uninformed will take care of themselves. I think where it becomes a problem is where you have mass masses moving things in a direction that becomes unstoppable for you standing in a crowd. Yeah. And like, I think what this digital interface is, is a virtual mob that starts to infringe on your rights to reality, essentially, which is the fact is that meat is not bad for you yet. There is a very strong push, especially on these platforms to get people to eat a plant-based diet. We know that that is not good for you, yeah. right? We already eat a plant-based diet. Most people's, by definition of what's going on right now, most people's calories that's led to higher than 66% of obesity and uh, overweight is a plant-based diet. Corn? Corn, flour, <laughs> sugar. These are all, it's highly processed garbage, which yeah, yeah. again, don't care. Fucking eat yourself to death. Do it like I, you know, <laughs> Do like it a, faster. Yeah, just you know, it's a slow yeah. process, and we also have to cover like you know the medical bill and our taxes. But yeah. besides that fact, I also don't care. What I do care about 
is that the people that want to find good information cannot because yep. it is actively suppressed. Yeah. So if you Google now what the appropriate diet is on Google versus something like uh, an unsecured platform like Brave or something like that, you get very different answers. Huh. One is obviously influenced by a market in a in this maybe this is conspiracist getting into that realm, but it's obvious of where it's going, where it's like, this is how you should eat. And now if you didn't understand how important that is, the people who are unable to inform themselves, i.e. the poor, um, spend most of their money. This is 70% of uh, welfare dollars get spent on sugary sodas sure. and processed food. Oh, That's like the category. And so you have this, uh, we're writing about it, so this is kind of why it's a yeah, fun yeah, topic. Yeah. Um, the, the topic goes like, at what point is the behavior of people a result of the food that they eat? And you're like, how I look at it is whether it's money markets, um, drug wars, wars in Afghanistan, like what endless wars, whatever this is, mob behavior, um, riots, um, whatever it is. When you look at how these people are living and eating, it's like it all kind of stems from how they feel. And I think that's a direct response to what they're consuming to make them feel a certain way. And we're being told to eat a certain way that makes us not feel good, which changes our behavior. I was like, people that don't feel good have desperate behavior. And that's where they start lashing out, acting out. And that's where I think these social media platforms become a really negative uh, feedback loop because I, man, the people that don't fe feel good are fucking angry and frustrated and they're starting hmm. to get you know more loud and they're being influenced by politicians who don't feel good and they're being paid by bankers that don't feel good. Hmm. And you're like, I, maybe it's just a weird, you know, anomalous thing that's happening and maybe the world has always been like this, but I don't think so. It's an interesting link up. I, I'd never considered it, but I know... Totally anecdotally, totally self-referentially, when I eat bullshit food, I feel shitty. <laughs> right. And it's like, it is like, it's so axiomatically <laughs> self-evident to me totally. that it's like the idea that that could be happening on a society-wide basis, yeah, fuck, why not? Do you know what I think about? And this is kind of like fucked up. If I go like, you know, it tastes good. So I'll go like Pretty Bird and get a fried chicken sandwich. It's fucking amazing, yeah. right? And then I'm kind of fucking irritable for the next 24 hours. Yeah, the I next day, man, it's it, so obvious to me. Yeah, yeah, and and I and and I I don't disagree that, that with this idea that yeah, the way I behave around and to other people, yeah, when I'm feeling shitty like that, um, is is totally different. This is uh, I asked you for this data the other day because I thought it was really interesting. Right when the pandemic was happening, uh, a friend of ours. Uh, Polly, who was on the podcast, is oh, kind of yeah. like he's involved in all sorts of crazy, secrety, squirrely stuff. And he sent us this thing on, you know, respiration data and masks. And he goes, Look at this. And it was just like it was before there was even controversy here. And it kind of had to do with like respiratory rates and anxiety mm -hmm. and all of these things. And since we teach breathwork, this is kind of obvious, but you put already, well, let's state this like the general population are full of unconscious people. And I mean, they're awake technically, yeah. but they are not aware. Yeah. And this is, I don't know, 10,000 year old problem, right? Yeah. This is something Buddha was telling people to wake the fuck up. This is not like news anywhere. Like pretty much every philosophy has to do with this, like increasing your awareness. I so mean, you can Sam Harris says it. 
<laughs> wake up podcast which is fucking ironic um, but you have essentially have this like in, in uh, linked to these 5000 year old structures is this idea that the breath is the fundamental the fundamental structure for awareness yeah. and consciousness has to do with your breath yeah. maybe a lot of it is metaphor but most of it is actual right the breath of life the word spirit it, it's like yeah. all of this has to do with respiration um and the importance of that is that it's a system that takes care of itself. The intelligence is in the body and it will breathe for you. It'll pump your heart for you. It'll circulate the blood for you. It'll do all this stuff. But the breath is one thing that we can hijack and actually reinforce, right? We can we can override it. And people, to the most degree, I would say 99.9% .9 of the population does not do this ever. No. Then on top of that, you get this idea, this perception from authority, from experts, from people that are trying to quote unquote save your life that you should cover your mouth for 90% of your existence so not that that's bad I don't like wear a mask I don't cover your fucking ugly face I don't care what I care about I can't see your smile <laughs> that's what really hurts my soul I'm not <laughs> smiling that's why yeah. <laughs> what's the sticker we have out there the tits are fake the, sm or the, the tits are real the smile, the smile is fake, fake. yeah <laughs> <laughs> so you have this Classic. you have this idea of suppression and this is kind of the data on Paul really early on we knew people are getting higher and higher levels of uh CO2 intolerance huh. right which you'll you'll recognize in any kind of like RER test uh is a bad thing yep. it increases it increases anxiety increases yep. depression it increases you're like see so where I'm going like the fundament the things that kind of save you in this world are like mostly free Right, like yeah, they, yeah, and what I saw during the last three years is this increase in panic and anxiety, and most people wanted to blame the platforms, right? Most people wanted, and I wanted to blame the fact that it was unconsciousness, and like hmm. if you take deep breaths, you change your nature, right? If I just do this. <laughs> microdose breath or whatever yeah. you want to call it <laughs> microdosing oxygen i start panicking <laughs> oh yeah i microdose yeah I, I start like panicking really really quickly yeah, yeah, yeah right and so therefore the state that i'm in is a, just a reflection of what i'm fostering i.e the food that i take the relationships my environment and the breath that i take and when i think you add all of this up in a very complex problem you start to say, i hate to say it, but it's like why do we have bank runs I don't know. Maybe it's masks. That's a stupid like correlation, but that's kind of where I'm going with it. Is that these? And I think where Mark was talking. Not none of us like. I think are defending Twitter because I think that is also dumb. Nor yeah. attacking it. I'm yeah. assuming because the platforms are the mechanism. Right. It's a megaphone. It's a broadcast mechanism. Um, but it also and and it in and of itself it has no consciousness. But it is. But it. But because it doesn't. It is um, uh, wide open to influence. Or does it? Is that the fucking, is this the, I mean, this would be, did you, uh, speaking of Tim Ferriss, he had John Vervecki on there. Okay. Uh, do you know who John Vervecki is? No. Nope. Um, both of you guys just have to look him up. Okay. Um, he he is a professor with a very controversial, um, what's his name? Um, the psychologist from Canada who has like a really wispy voice. Peterson. Peterson. Yeah. So he's a uh, a colleague of his, but he teaches something slightly different. Um, his concepts 
on this are very, very interesting because he's talking about um, the tools through evolutionary history that evolve man. And what he's talking about language being this um, evolutionary tool that amplified in the next stage, like language then gets amplified by the next thing. And like, do these things have their own entity because we are aware that they are not actually things that they actually they're pervasively entities, right? Th this kind of changed uh, my mind to think to not think of l love or or an emotion as a um, uh, as a thing as a noun. It, it's it is a verb in some sense, but it's its own verb. It is its own energy. It's its own thing. And you either foster it or you don't. It's almost like food that you consume. It's just invisible, right? It's subtle energy. And so this is what he taught. Vrecki taught that like these these uh, virtues are not things. They are entities. They're their own awareness, their own conscious states. And you interact with them and they shift yours. Yeah. And I think of the kind of the internet as maybe the same, which it's like its complexity makes it its own entity. And I don't know how to conceptualize that yet, but it really changed how I thought about things that I want to foster, like love and these like higher virtues. Instead of just thinking it's a thing that's outside of myself, something that I can actually interact with and play with and also get rid of, which I think led to kind of like, you know, maybe on the deeper spiritual side, like how do you release trauma? Well, if it's an entity, you can play with it and kind of expel it out of your system. Anyway, that's, that is on Tim Ferriss's thing. I think it's worth seeing him. I, I will. He's phenomenal. I don't know where that was going either. I've just been all over the place. I, I do feel like I did a little exploring in the soon-to-be-published piece, I guess, of, you know, about the the idea of the the AI finding its way to the thing that gets it the most positive feedback. Yeah. And um, appealing to our most base and venal nature it provides the AI with the feedback that it is looking for, which is attention and interaction with it. Well, that's where it's going to go. Yeah. And so, and, and whether it's a, you know, an independent entity or anything like that, I, there's um, an inexpert. Uh, uh, so therefore can um, not qualify to comment, but, um, but I, I think these, the, the, the where eventually that our interactions, uh, uh, the way that I see them going right now, leads is to um, th there will not need to you know the the, the the those in power will not need to abrogate our rights because we will give them up ourselves voluntarily <laughs> yeah, for the sake of fucking sure. convenience. Yeah, and this is where I see that the that these platforms and the the way that they encourage human beings to communicate with each other mm -hmm. will change the nature of actual human interaction um, in the meat world. I, maybe, maybe what I'm most fascinated by, like exactly what he's talking about is that um, I can navigate the food health uh, fitness and like, you know, the, <laughs> the normal shit, but I am completely ignorant when it comes to, monetary investment financial like strategy so i guess what I, why i was very excited to have you in here is because this exact subject i don't want 
I, I don't want to go do a bank run because I'm just reading Twitter or I don't want to, you know, keep yeah. my money in the bank because I talk I'm, to my advisor. Because I'm reading Twitter. Yeah. Or, 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 and or, the or, irony or, is that that was Peter Thiel's first announcement was, like on, was on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, it, has, right. it has a very serious power and it, 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 it should it should be recognized you know i don't i don't think it is stoppable at this point um but coming back to you know maybe one of the first questions we so asked so when the even... genie left the bottle it destroyed the bottle <laughs> it, it crushed the cap <laughs> it crushed the cap there's no going back he's a drunk i you know i asked this because it's like when i look for advice so we have you know um some investment money in like a fund that i don't even know what it is it's not very much but it's enough to be you know worried about because you don't, definitely don't want to lose it That's yeah fund in a spot to lay down yeah <laughs> um but like when i think about it i go okay what do i like Just digging for those gold coins i buried <laughs> over there <laughs> like what do i what do i know about finance next to nothing other than this like totally i don't know made up story narrative of me hating banking people and finance people but you know that crypto will save us i was going to go there next okay but, <laughs> but my my like real my real like foundational problem is i go uh, i can't go talk to like a financial advisor because he's a shill for the system you know, I can't, I like, there's just a strong bias there. And I, I don't want to, um, it's like a bad idea. They're going to tell me some really basic shit. I can't get on Twitter and ask an expert because it could be the Robert Malone of fucking finance. And you just, you know, which means he's like credible and he's saying some provocative things, but it could be, you know, take your money out and run and then whatever. So how do you like even conceptualize educating yourself i guess is the real question i would just i would use as an analog what you have accomplished in nutrition science and you clearly have the intellectual capacity to process a sufficient information load to arrive at a level of expertise in finance you clearly have that that's not it's not like you have the there's no there's no gating factors around becoming an expert in finance for you. I mean, f finance, yeah, at, at, at some level, it gets wickedly complicated, mm -hmm. but um, it's primarily an, an administrative function. And you just have to develop, you know, commit to the acquisition of knowledge to the point that you become a fairly highly functional administrator of your wealth. Mm. And, you know, the, you said it yourself beautifully, um, you know, a little bit ago where you said, you know, the majority of people are not awake. They're not awake to the reality of nutrition, not awake to the reality of social media, not awake to the reality of the messaging that the governments d deliver to us. And I think that in, in, in many cases, that's probably okay because there's a whole lot of people who don't have the kind of Foot intellectual horsepower that you guys do. Foot cells is what we call it. Foot cells? Foot cells. Yeah. Okay. I mean, there's neocortex cells that are fairly active, yeah. and then they're, but they're both necessary. Yeah. And you're like, we need them, but you know, they're not going to fucking turn on consciousness. And you have just, you have just chosen so far in your life to to point your considerable intellect at nutrition and physiology. That's you, where that's where you've chosen to allocate your. Would I be right in assuming like like nutrition that. I, well, th maybe th maybe this is why I'm worried. Because um, most most of the industry in fitness is actually incorrect. 
Yeah, and most of the most of the information in finance is not necessarily incorrect, but it is not sufficiently customized to the individual. Mm, okay. Right? Maybe that's more accurate. Yeah. And the the challenge with that is when you have um when the when the organizing rubric for finance is a highly reductionist approach to um assuring financial independence over time. And the the structure around that is basically applied universally to everybody. Mm-hmm. Then almost by definition, every single person in that system can say, well, it's not really right for me in the following set of ways. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. Cause I feel like I'm not being very clear. Um, you know, in, in, in the world that I operated in, we serve very wealthy families, right? And most of the firms that we competed against would say in their marketing material and in their pitches were very we we work from a highly customizable perspective. We mm-hmm. build you custom portfolios. But the reality behind that was there was a handful of model portfolios, you know, three, four, five model portfolios. So the home in a subdivision, like and, one of three custom homes styles yeah. that you can choose from. And you do these um, fairly sophisticated intake interviews that would create the appearance of custom. insight and customization. <laughs> Shit, and so it was a form, like yeah, it's a form of risk bucketing, <laughs> yeah. basically. And you would categorized in this completely arbitrary way, you know, high risk investor, moderate risk investor, low risk investor, and that would lead you to a portfolio construction that was very scalable. But all of those models are designed to optimize for the net operating margin of the advisory firm. Yeah, not, not the individual. For the outcomes for the individual, right? Because the reality is that building customized portfolios is not scalable. It's just, it's not. It takes a lot of time. I would say the same about fitness. Fitness. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why I said it's a really good analog. Yeah, yeah. yeah it really is. Yeah. Um, and you can take a highly reductionist approach to um, nutrition, let's say, and say, mm-hmm. look, it's really pretty simple. You avoid processed foods. Mm-hmm. You know, you try to limit your sugar intake reasonably. Um, eat a little bit more protein. And you're going to get like 80% of the way there. Yeah. Just with that basic rule. And you can get super refined from there. You know, blood types. I don't even know what you would do, but you could get super, super customized. It's the same thing with, with finance. There's some basic rules. Um, That'll get you get eight, the standard investor 80% of the, yeah. 80% yeah. Of the way there. Like totally. you're your, you know, your tax-free into IRA kind of deal. And yeah, that's fund like your IRAs. Yeah. You know, don't try to time the market. Time in the market and the magic of compounding is what really does it for you. Yeah. And these and these are rules that are don't the, invest in your friend's business. <laughs> the power, <laughs> the power of the rule is not um, diminished by the apparent simplicity of it, nor by the the how often it is repeated. Gotcha. Okay. I mean that, that that's it's it's very clarifying to put it in those words, and I think like. We only had one more dimension yeah, to it. Yeah. The other thing is that those very, very simple rules are very easy to do yourself and you don't need to pay somebody else to do it. And you can just cram down your expenses associated with administering your own money by doing that. Uh, but you do have to commit somewhat to it. And sure. there's nothing on Wall Street that is going to support that message. Right. So I, I think that was that's very similar to the advice um, that uh, my friend that was kind of guiding me on this originally said, which is like, if you care about it, and this is like we we kind of trained him for quite a while. Personal, uh, Aaron would private chef for him. He would travel with him, and I would train him. And he became a, a fairly good friend. And so when you know that relationship kind of uh, ended, we stayed in contact. And when I asked him advice on this, because he's fairly successful in lots of different domains, mostly sales and business and property or whatever, but successful how I would imagine success. Uh, big residual monthly, 
doesn't work. And you're like, cool, that sounds like my kind of life. Um, he said that, you know, the, the fundamental for understanding finance is waking up and checking your bank account. Yeah. And it's like, it sounds really dumb. He's like, but what he noticed from working, i.e. with poor people, you know, m- me essentially compared in the in the wealth scheme of things is that, uh, and, it, and when he compared it, I thought it was pretty similar. It's like people with diet, it's the same thing. They just don't look. They don't look. And when you look, things become, you become aware. Yep. And um, I'd have to say that that's 100% true. It's painful to look sometimes, to be like, ah, oh, shit, I'm 40. Why do I only have $500 in this bank account? Or like whatever the, you know, how have I ignored this like simple problem? It's painful because it you treat it like an identity, but it's not an identity, yeah. right? It's not, you are not your wealth, but your outcome and experience is very much dictated by it. Just like you're not your diet, but if I keep eating fucking corn dogs and chicken nuggets, it's going to limit my experience. Um. I get it. Yeah. It's just like you could talk about it, but eventually you just have to do it. And that is like anything. And I, and I think this idea of customization, I mean, you only, you know, you know, which of which organs, uh, make you feel the best when you eat them. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, um, <laughs> unfortunately it's the gross ones. <laughs> <laughs> It's been my experience as well. <laughs> but but I, I can't say, like, for the amount of time, you know, that it was it was great to wake up and go, oh, the number in this account was higher today, and then it was lower, and then it, you know, and then it was higher, and then it was, and I'm just like, I can't, I can't do this. Mm-hmm. Because my individual nature can't, it doesn't, I don't need it to be fixed but random fluctuation, you know, mm-hmm. apparently random because I don't know enough about it, the, you know, the why of it or um, uh, wasn't good for me. And yeah, the, yeah, yeah. when I took everything out and paid off a piece of real estate, it's like, oh, there it is. Yeah. Easy. And then it's just it, it, it's there and it's something's happening with it. I don't, you know, yeah. value wise, I don't know. But I mean, it, imagine it, if over your door on your house, you had the daily price. And every time you came home, it was like this illuminated yeah. thing. And, you know, how would you, how would you feel about that? D- fucking seppuku on the front porch, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's why what your, what your friend said about checking your bank balance, I think that that's a metaphor for developing an awareness of your financial reality. I don't yeah. think he actually meant yeah, to, yeah, to yeah, look at it. Look at, you got to yeah. check your bank balance every single day, particularly yeah. if he's got, you know, high monthly, or maybe you do if you've never paid attention to it, right? To, to, yeah, to, to like, set the practice. Yeah, yeah, and to see the fluctuation and, and accept the... And know that I didn't die before before I checked it, and now that I'm actually noticing it, nothing's actually changing. Yeah. I'm just becoming aware of the movement. Yeah. One thing that, I, that he did say that I thought was pretty fascinating was use your credit cards to purchase, but then you pay them off at the, mm-hmm. you know, at the end of the month, blah, blah, blah. And note his, the, the point where he missed, like he was one day late and like he always pays on this yeah. time, you know, this many days before it's due, it gets mm-hmm. paid, right? He misses it by one day and the fucking, uh, the, the effect on his credit rating was like Boom. instantaneous because yeah. it was a change in behavior. Yeah. And I was like, oh my, there's Tracking some behavior. metaphor here. Mm-hmm on a life level, not just that, yeah. about how we relate to other human beings. Yeah, I paid, then, off all, yeah. I paid off every single thing of debt like over the last several years, um, and my credit rating has dropped. Yeah, yeah. 
yeah. because I'm no oh, longer yeah. I'm no longer carrying any debt. I'm no longer making yeah. monthly payments, and yeah. I don't, you know, I don't really I don't really care. I'm I'm in a position where that doesn't influence anything in my life. But I found it instructive. Yeah. Oh yeah. That that happened. It's your you've kind of exited out of the system, and it's kind of punishment. Yeah, which is which is interesting because I mean I always I always presume that a credit score indicated credit worthiness. It's not. It's it it's become in part no, an indicator of the profitability of lending money to you. Yeah, that is a better way to put it. That and I think that is very telling about the industry and how it works and industrialization in in general. Like I I would say the same thing like. Um, the person you hire to help you with your fitness isn't a reflection of what they want to make you be. It's a reflection of kind of the their industry, what they're making off of you. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that's why trainers are so like, oh, I want to work with a professional athlete because it amplifies their income mm-hmm. or amplifies their their social status so that they get more income from the low the lowlies that they don't have to do specific work for. Yeah. Like it's like, I, it's just it's disgusting to me, and it's like. I think that's my biggest problem with finance in general was that I wrote it off as something that's for, uh, I don't, it, it's just like a, a, a false morality that I assigned to people who sought after riches, but it isn't that it's actually, it's just the industrialized version of wealth creation, but actual understanding wealth and finance is just understanding your behavior in a certain way. In a certain degree, yeah, and I've I've certainly met people who are absolute fucking cretins, and their sure. sole objective in life is to add another zero. Yeah, like absolutely, sure. and yeah. I think that that pursuit is an existentially hollow one. Sure, um, and yet we all we all sort of know that in some in on some level, like the greatest freedom we have is the freedom to do whatever the fuck you want. For sure, like that is this is this is the what ultimate I, yeah, statement the of freedom. Yeah, right. so here, so I'll I'll you know I'll share this with you guys. Mm-hmm. You know I. I I was a co-founder of this financial services company that became very, very successful. And um, I became bored out of my mind in the middle of all of that. Um, and I was very transparent with my, co- with my co-founding partners and it became a sort of an odd point of confrontation between us. And when I exited, I exited in an incredibly adversarial way. It was, it was I did it poorly mm. and the exit was at the tail end of several years of behavior that I am genuinely not proud of. Like I was saying shit I regret. I was acting in ways that was not admirable. And it was because I didn't want to be there anymore. I just didn't want to be there. But the pay, yeah, but the pay (laughs) was impossible to turn around. And the fact that this was something I'd given so much of my life energy to, I didn't want to walk away from it. Sunk cost fallacy sunk cost fallacy and it was just you know ego and it was very so anyway i left and under no objective evaluation could anyone conclude that i don't have enough money to live exactly how i want to live yeah right and yet i am plagued <laughs> Behavior, yeah. i yeah. am plagued by money that i left on the table and i can't i can't quite figure that out other than to say, okay, well, it's, you know, it's jealousy or greed or whatever else, but I can't, like, can't, I can't literally figure it out. And I talked with a handful of people who have gone through similar experiences. And one of my really good friends was founding partners at Generation, along with Al Gore and, and Blood, and he left at year year one because he got totally sideways with those guys. But the people that he had recruited are now all retiring, oh, fuck. with twenty to fifty million dollar balance sheets. Yeah, sure. And naturally. <laughs> Because that's what finance does if you yeah. hit a home run there. And, you know, 
he can say objectively, I left because I wanted to pursue something else. Pursuing something else allowed me to build an amazing relationship with my wife, have a great relationship Mm -hmm. with my children, have sufficient financial success and professional, you know, a career path trajectory that allowed me to basically live the way that I want to live. But I wake up in the middle of the night so angry at myself for leaving generation, even though I know that I would be like them and they're all two or three time divorcees, very unhealthy. Um, Many of them are dealing with like chronic diseases and that's not the life that I want at all. This the life that I have is the life that I want. Yeah. And, and yet. And yet. I mean it's and it's it's really difficult. I mean, we can't we can't know um what the 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 outcome of a particular event or decision will be. We think we do. Yeah. We we it, you know, we have expectations, we war game it in our heads. We think this is a good thing, this yeah. is a bad thing. I was um talking with Blair the other day on this exact t- topic of and, and and not the you know the what if um, I should have you know not not anything like that but I was just like man as horrible and devastating as it was to have um, for, for my former business to end the way that it did um, some behavior I'm not proud of some that I am um, but in you know confrontational relationships you know that all of and and bad blood and still bad and and i should look at that or i could and i have looked at that as like oh this is this was this was a negative thing this was a horrible you know terrible thing and it was and yet this right here wouldn't exist yeah had that not happened and um and obviously it's never going to be instantaneous you know make decisions or decisions get made for you about certain things we characterize them in certain ways and then it's super easy to drop anchor there and to have that be um that initial idea of the, the the experience or feeling around it be the terminal feeling around that experience when we grow we change yeah and it's like, well, this is, and the thing that put me here is like, oh, well, this is the life that I want now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is the thing that I want to be doing. This is the thing I want to be doing. And with the people that I want to do that thing with. Yeah. Then I also look back and I go, man, we were on track with that company. You know, it was, if I just could have kept my mouth shut, you know, and not done, not said the things that I said or did because I was uncomfortable and didn't want to be within that company that was going in a direction that I didn't want. But God damn, there was some money to be made if that thing got sold to one of the players because it was another thing that was deep with content, deep with philosophical underpinnings, deep with public awareness and exposure, not only in you know Hollywood, but also on the government side. And there was a ton of fucking, you know, value there. And I could have had the, you know, whatever zero moved. Yeah, wouldn't have been worth it. At fucking all. I've I've held you up in my own mind as somebody who is willing to do that. And maybe sometimes at the tip of the spear. But as I understand your sort of narrative arc, 
you've done that multiple times in your career where you've le- <laughs> where you've sort of reached a level of expertise in something and then said it's no longer satisfying to me at this moment i want to do something i want to reinvent myself in some other way and so you know the courage to do that the conviction to do that has its costs but it's also it's it's a life of really intense integrity and i can i can say you know personally for a number of years there i was not standing in integrity relative to that position in that business at that time. And I'm very proud of aspects of what Caprock did and the role that we played in, in our little corner of financial services. But I am not proud personally of the way that I behaved as a partner in that business because I didn't really want to fucking be there. Yeah. Yeah. These are, there's just such like interesting, I mean, there's, you know, there's always going to be fables of, of these, like, you know, you, you do chase the money and then you lose the thing. Cause like the cost, you don't know the opportunity cost of getting the, you know, uh, buckling down and, you know, getting the $50 million retirement thing. Yeah. And the problem is that that kind of wealth happens at the tail end of long commitments. Right. You know, it's only in the crypto world or in technology world that say, you can just kind of wave your wand and be like, Oh fuck, I'm a billionaire. In 2016, I was trying to transfer 37,000 uh, British pounds into Bitcoin yeah. when it cost $276 a coin. And I couldn't, I was trying to figure out how to do it. And uh, I made a mistake by asking my mom's advice about whether I should do this. She's like, absolutely not. And when it blew up, I've never been more regretful. But what I also fail to realize in the moment when I just think about the glory number. And I think when I did the math, it was like $11 million or something. We would have had 150,000 coins, give or take. Yeah. So you would have been $28,000 a coin as of today or something. Yeah. It would have been plenty. Yeah. Um, And when I think about it though, I go, but I lived off of that $35,000 and that's actually what made us be able to do this because we didn't take a, an income from here for like two years. So yeah. I was like, you know, I'm really glad I have this $35,000 that I didn't blow on Bitcoin, even though at the time when I was looking at it, it was just like what I missed out on. Sure. Right. Because I wouldn't even need to do this business if I had $2 million. But to be honest, like I uh, would I trade this experience, the past since 2017 for now for $10 million, there's not a fucking chance. Like there, no money could actually pay for the kind of meaningful experiences we've had through here and with people. And it's not all good. It's not all gravy, but it's so like, I, I think it's the epitome of life experience. You're like deep integral bonds and deep meaningful experiences with human beings that I don't deserve to be around. You're like, there's no amount of money that matches that. And I think honestly what I bought with my $35,000, that was the investment. And this is the actual return. And you go, yeah, a, okay, worth it. That's a really cool way of looking at it. It's all, but it took a but lot. But it's impossible. Yeah, it, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's hard. It is hard to see that story. And the only reason I think that I'm able to is because um, in trying to make myself feel better, I had to let go of regret. And that was a trauma, something that I subconsciously felt like I did wrong and I hurt my family by not having $10 million to take care of them. You know, how many things, how many problems could I solve with $10 million or whatever it ends up being? You're like, not many actually like $10 million doesn't even save life actually. And so, um, 
that 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 was the work that that is real work that's not you know you know the spiritual awakening bullshit that people talk about no it's like sitting down and and trying to figure out the benefit of of the negatives that you've gone through that's fucking terrible too it's it's hard you know you got to give up a piece of yourself but when you do you're (laughs) free you're like i'm actually free to enjoy it now and that's i only mentioned that because we went through i did this wacky breath class Yesterday, this guy, uh, Watali, comes in. He's like over the top, super entertaining. But I never have somebody to facilitate my breath work. So I want to like go to it. And the whole time, they're just talking about fucking trauma. Like, yeah, what trauma? Forgive your dad. Blah, blah. And they're like yelling at you to like, you know, and people are screaming and having a fucking Pentecostal revival kind of deal going on, which is fine. I'm, you know, I'm cool with them. If you got to do it, if you got to scream into the void, man. I'm glad you have a space yeah. to do it because not many people do. But at the same time, I was trying to really like, am I block? Am I just like really good at hiding my problems? And I literally at the core, my like gut was like, no, man, you're good. Like I've got mm-hmm. nothing to get rid of. You know, I'm not holding on to anything. And it felt like a good belly laugh about this is fucking hilarious that like this is actually what healing feels like is when you go back and do these like weird little brain games with yourself and you and you end up laughing and you end up laughing because it's <laughs> fucking funny <laughs> like, it's fucking bizarre it's that's, a banana that's, that's the buddhist uh, god hote that's oh her, yeah that's sort of his gig right it's like yeah yeah you should probably be laughing yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like, yeah that is i forgot all about that one that's actually pretty good uh fuck i that, that's maybe that's the importance of practical philosophy right it's actually practical yeah, originally it was meant to be practical yeah, yeah and then it just turned into some highfalutin german regurgitation but yeah i mean adam smith was a philosopher yeah and yeah. it was the height of practicality yeah i think i mean the i, I would say that most the the founding fathers would have to be yeah in order to like mm-hmm try to comprehend how people should live you have to understand philosophy yeah you know I'm, I'm, i told you i'm under contract to write this book and and the talk that i gave that triggered the contract um started off with a sort of a reassessment of adam smith okay and uh, you know i said look you know anybody who's read adam smith has probably read the wealth of nations if you've done it and very few people who even um, very few people who have read adam smith and hold him out as sort of the f- grandfather of capitalism have read the first book that he wrote, The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And yet Smith himself said that the first book was by far the more important. Mm. And it's the, it's the moral wow. framework. For capitalism. For capitalism. Yeah. And so, you know, sort of my, my core thesis is, you know, to get here, we had to first ignore the theory of moral sentiments and focus exclusively on the user's manual, which is the wealth of nations. Mm-hmm. And then we had to allow subsequent economists, you know, philosophers slash economists to narrow the field of focus at each successive generation. And so, um, you know, Mill narrowed it to the theory of utility and happiness, and then Hardin narrowed it to private property, and then Friedman narrowed it once again to the primacy of shareholder profitability. (laughs) And so we ended up with this notion around capitalism that- So far from- So far from Adam Smith. I mean, in, in- and it was such a it was such a sobering moment for me to read the theory of moral sentiments because I was just curious about it, right? I, I and I was like, holy fuck, man, we have totally misunderstood Adam Smith. Yeah. Like we have completely 
misrepresented him to generations of MBAs and economists. And that's um, fascinating, actually. It's been super fun to write this book. Yeah. Um, you know, it goes on from there, but that's that's the that's sort of the first piece of the book, which is reinterpreting Adam Smith. That is crazy. Because I, when I think about it, you're like the answer to you know, the moral prerogative for globalization is that, you know, it should reduce poverty, right? Like capital, capitalism is kind of the only mechanism by which we've done such phenomenal work by reducing poverty. Um, and it's so weird to mention, even to mention reducing poverty is like fucking commie. And you're like, Whoa. yeah. <laughs> and, and, and Smith <laughs> speaks specifically about that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you, you mentioned earlier that I, you know, I had spent some time in the Vatican and I was part of a group of people that were yeah. helping the Vatican Bank think through how they might redeploy their capital to support the mission of the church, which, mm -hmm. you know, in, in, intuitively is like, that sort of makes sense. Yeah. Like, you should do that. <laughs> yeah, because, because yeah, yeah, because your helping hand is actually helping in, in most cases. Yeah, and, and capitalism does have the capacity to do that. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I, I could like launches conversation no, this, i think it's really uh, it's like astute because i never knew i only knew about the second book i don't even most people it. do most yeah. people would be able to at least reference the invisible hand yeah of the i never read it I think, the, yeah that, or the I, parable of the yeah. needle you know the, the safe the pin maker or the, the the baker who bakes a bread not in his own best interest but because he wants to sell it you know see i, I think most people get ayn rand wrong by uh atlas uh struggled was like her at, premier atlas work Shred. and you're like it's it's not it's no. not even close you know like <laughs> no i was like eh. yeah i mean anybody who's any god and then her, the premise somebody's gonna hear this and be like you motherfucking arrogance anybody who <laughs> says to me oh one of my favorite books is atlas shrugged i'm like you didn't you... finish it well no I, I say so you haven't read any since, anything since you were a sophomore in high school yeah exactly <laughs> i was having this discussion with blair because she hasn't she has not read alice shrugged but the fountainhead was one of her favorite books and yeah and i said oh well the fountainhead is the one you read as an adolescent yes like a, a coming of age book yeah so her first ayn rand book was anthem huh. which oh. i was like oh well that's the best one um really but I, said, I think so i haven't read it actually I was going to argue for Fountainhead. Well, and that's that's the coming of age book. And then Atlas Shrugged is the one you read when you've been fucked over by <laughs> the powers that be so many times that you just want to retreat to some, you know, a, a property and like live by your I mean, this does, own this makes sort total, of libertarian and autonomous. It makes idea. total sense for the Adam Smith thing, because I think, yeah, like when you see the market today and kind of how perverse and grotesque it is, it's like, well, it looks like it just got put through a Pornhub search engine on finance. And so it's like the bottom of the barrel kind of deal. And I think when you look at Ayn Rand and people equate that with libertarianism, you're like, man, that's not it either. Because yeah. when I read Fountainhead, it was it was, it was kind of like the freedom of creation. Determinism like this, is yeah. a really different thing than libertarianism. Yeah. yeah. The, the originality just became like this, this idea. And I, I think um, Osho talks about this too. It's like, there's this concept, uh, Eric Fromm as well, like the freedom from. Well, he stopped. It's also the freedom to. Yeah. And in in true freedom is actually just the ability to imprison yourself <laughs> in an idea or a concept or that, in a, a a path. Is it Isaiah huh? Berlin maybe who who uh, I can't remember exactly, but is it, it uh, his thesis? Two kinds of freedom, and yeah. it's the freedom to or the freedom from. Yeah. And okay. and I think like that was a liberating early 30s distinction mm -hmm. for me of like oh fuck 
Yeah. I've just been concerned with freedom from, from my whole yeah. fucking life because I'm yeah. hate authority, you know, or whatever it is. Yeah. And then to to uh, recognize like, oh, well, the the power of you know a positive freedom is is um, also a prison. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, and that I think that goes to the philosophical side, which I think most people they just think that when I ask for freedom, it's it's like you know, I just want to do whatever I want. And you're like, no, I, I just like, when I pick the path, that's the prison that I'm picking. Hmm. And I'm going to like, that's, yeah. you know, but I had the choice to make it. And I, I think most people lose it. That, that's why I think the enlightenment is doing nothing because that's true freedom. True freedom is being in between those. It's like true freedom is being in between the breath as well. It's like they equate the same thing, not making a decision, like not caring where the arrow goes. It's all like kind of this like yeah. emptiness uh, that that is the feature of true freedom, but it gets you nowhere. So eventually, you just have to imprison yourself and go. Like it's a fucking it's a it's a so wacky choose choose your prison carefully. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Which maybe that brings us back to man, you chose the better prison than you know the 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 business and maybe the yeah slush and, fund. And to your point, I had the freedom to do that. I had the freedom to choose that because I was unencumbered mm. by the financial imperative of earning a living that allowed me, I mean, earning enough money to allow me to live the kind of life that I wanted to live. Yeah. And, you know, obviously there's, there's, there's the expense side and the revenue yeah. side when you're structuring the life that you want and you can just cram the shit out of your expense side. Yeah. If that ends up with you leaving the life that you want. And, you know, I think, you know, when you were a climbing junkie, you did that very, very successfully. Yeah. Right. Um, I think I want to say that it, I think it was a, Yosemite climber Eric Zishi, maybe uh, I might be attributing this wrong, but it was like at, at either end of the social spectrum, there's a leisure class, <laughs> <laughs> and when you fucking cram your expenses, and you know the first time I got audited by the IRS was for a year I made less than ten thousand dollars, but that was a year I did exactly what the fuck I wanted. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and so there was a, a leisure class with a, uh, you know. A lot of characteristics that people wouldn't would, would consider more hard or hardship, yeah. as opposed to being, you know, free. I mean, yeah, we and ca- calling that leisure. We we kind of covered this in our. Uh, we do like these, you know, weekly dissertations for our clients, where we just like give them way too much information <laughs> and make them deal with it. Um, and, and this theory came up because uh, Sam mentioned we were talking about aesthetic uh, prowess and how to like attain it. Because it's a worthy, virtuous goal to be like a work of art, a walking work of art, and I don't, I think that gets missed in in forms of vanity and these other things. And surely it goes down that way when it's perverse. But the original thought, and I think the Greeks agreed this, is like the human body is a work of art. And most people, like somebody mentioned, is like, yeah, but don't you think you have to sacrifice to get that? And it's like, wow, what do you like? It depends on your definition. You know, if you've uh-huh. put yourself in a position of expenses and a lifestyle, it, like, yeah, sacrifice is definitely a part of it. But if, you know, eating better and, and sleeping more and enjoying your training so that it becomes reciprocal and a part of the process and it becomes like a, a good, a positive feedback loop. Sacrifice is not found in those feelings. Freedom is actually found in those feelings, but you have to cram your expenses in order to experience something like that. Social experiences, those kind of expenses. Um, But it was, it was a really interesting question that I think most people struggle with because they've put themselves on this, 
especially with finances, they put themselves in a position where they totally. have to work for somebody else. They have to be there eight hours a day. They can't manage their time. And they've also uh, bought into the lifestyle that makes them f- look wealthy, but is not wealthy. hundred percent. The first lesson I ever had from that, I was house sitting for a family friend who had built a house just south of Windensea in La Jolla. He was a, oh, he was a research scientist at Scripps and had been there for, you know, 50 years or something. Mm-hmm. So, he did it when he could afford it. I was house sitting for him. The guy right behind us had this huge house and super fancy cars and failed runway models, like parading in and out of his house, like all hours of the day. And I was like, dude, that guy has it made. And midway through my house sitting tenure, feds came and wrapped the house in yellow tape. And it was a complete illusion. And I was in college at the time. And I was like, wow, that is really instructive for me. Oh, fuck yeah. Yeah, (laughs) for sure. Yeah. I think, again, most things are an illusion. Yeah, and, and being in the business I was in for so yeah. long, I would the number of times where I would be approached by somebody and they would say, you know, we've heard you do this really well. Would you would you consider taking us on as a client? And I said, yeah, let's look at your balance sheet. And it was just, you know, these guys were making a million and a half a year, two million a year in income, yeah. and they had 100,000 bucks because they were just spending all of it. And yeah. what I concluded was that life lifestyle, mm-hmm. the, the expenses that support the decisions you make in your life, it just ratchets with income. Uh, yeah, if, you, if you're not attentive. If you're to, not attentive. Yeah. And if you are attentive, it's incredibly easy to not let that happen. Is this true? And I heard this. This could be totally false. But, um, you know, I, I have been reading a little bit on finance. But somebody mentioned that actually, statistically, um, the majority of people who are worth more than a million dollars in the U.S. make less than $72,000 a year. It's probably As right. a feature of making, like, being worth a certain amount yeah, has net worth. more to do with saving than it has to do with, like, making. Yeah, so Dr. Ra- I want to say it's Ralph Stanley, but I'm not positive that's his name. He wrote a book called The Millionaire Next Door 20-plus mm. years ago, and he was a research sociologist, I think, and he was really intrigued with this question. Um, and he discovered that um, similarly, the majority of millionaires in America do not have high income and they live in very modest neighborhoods. Yeah. And because his, his whole thing was, you know, expensive neighborhoods mm-hmm. encourage you to spend money. Yeah, keeping up with the Joneses. Yeah, you got to send your kids to private school and you got to have a new car every other year and you got to mm-hmm. do big vacations. And so it just consumes your income. Um, and I definitely saw that in, in my profession. And it was, yeah. it was, instructive for sure for me yeah you're not like uh i mean you don't seem like not that you're downtrodden or anything but you don't seem like somebody that needs like versace and and all that stuff is that is that a a rebellion because he likes going uphill like going it could be huh yeah i like going uphill and 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 that's the that's the metaphor for me so my wife, you like going that's <laughs> fascinating, actually. <laughs> so my wife was raised on a horse ranch mm-hmm. in on the border of Idaho and Oregon, and her family homesteaded there in the late 1800s in that area. Mm-hmm. So she's sort of from that world, and you know you don't get rich raising horses to right. be working horses. Yeah. You know if you're mm-hmm. raising equestrian uh, horses, stallions or something, yeah. maybe I don't know. Yeah. Um, and so we have a, sort of a different perspective on. On, on wealth and improving yourself. And she said something to me pretty early on in our relationship that stuck with me. She said, well, the reason you don't feel like you need to drive around in a BMW or wear fancy clothes is because you have such confidence in your own pedigree. 
that you don't need to present it all the time. And that really hurt. I was like, fuck, no, that's bull. And the more I thought about it, the more I was like, it's probably pretty accurate. Yeah. And I think about the, the people who are around me making sort of on a sort of a similar trajectory career-wise. And they've, they absolutely had to have new BMWs. Yeah. And they, sure. and they needed to be continually upgrading their house. And phones. And, and phones and everything and, yeah. because that was how they presented themselves to the world, uh, probably to fill some, some and I, hole And I themselves. would say that, that that's a feature of, uh, you know, it, it, it is an artificial intelligence of sorts, but it's a consumer algorithm, right? Which is the economy, which yeah. is based off of renew, renew, buy, 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 consume, 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 which is a disease when it's amplified too much. Totally. Um, and it sucks because we have to deal with in our business. We're like, uh, we need people to buy things. Yeah. You know, we want them to be good, valuable things. Um, we need to make some sort of profit or margin off of it in order to operate our space. It has to be realistic to match the worth. Um, but I really don't want people to buy shit that they don't need. Yeah. Well, it's, <laughs> you know, it's funny because Mark and I were talking about this a little bit earlier today and, you know, as a, as an outsider, who is an investor and a capitalist, I see that what you guys have is something that is quite valuable because it is, it's credible, high-value information delivered at a cadence which is digestible from people who give a shit. Mm. And to me, like that, that in and of itself is a highly differentiated product. I think the challenge you guys have is you're just not interested in... <laughs> The the, the 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 administrative function of building a business around this. I, we're getting better. Marketing, yeah. sales. Yeah. What I do mean, you mean we? <laughs> I, I'm I'm sorry. St I'm starting to look at it. Yeah, and and I <laughs> and I would just I would just encourage you to interrogate the motivation there, right? Because if, if the motivation is I want to reach more people because what we have is valuable and I want to be able to share this with, with more people. And that's a huge win. That's a totally winning recipe, I would think. And, and that's I, what I we were talking about, like just the, the, what I hit on with Poison and the fact that the first edition is almost sold out and we're going to do a second one. And then, I'm like, and then I think after that, it needs to be put in the hands of somebody with greater reach yeah yeah you know we will have done what we wanted to do with it but yeah. it can be of great that the ideas and the action everything in that can be of benefit to people um who have no idea that it that, that it exists or it could and I mean, so i mean you're, you're not building a mass market product here. No, no 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 at all i mean it's it's a it's a so, it's a difficult to consume message right yeah but your market is not 300 people your market is 300,000 people. Your market is, you know, half of a percent or 1% right. or something of the population, English speaking population. And, you know, and it's like, obviously you're not going to, you're not going to, you're not going to get, you know, millions of people buying your book, yeah. but your market is not 300 people. Yeah. It's just not. And the, and the fact that you haven't um, been able to do that, you know, it's a little bit like what I was saying about finance, um, you know, for you, Michael, but clearly the same thing applies for you, Mark. Um, if you chose to dedicate the same level of intellectual horsepower to the process of building in a distribution yeah. mechanism for your business, you would be able to do that. But if it doesn't hold your interest, then it's not, it's not going to, you're not going to do it. Yeah. I think it's one of those um, flagrant things because I think the, the thing that came, the interest that came naturally was um, sport. 
right? And it's yeah. like anything. Um, you do nutrition as kind of like, well, I want to do the sport thing. So you learn as little bit of, just to make it possible, yeah. right? But it's not the real thing. And I think this is very similar. It's funny that you mentioned that because when I tried to break it, when I'm changing, when I go, okay, uh, A, what are the reasons that we want to grow? And getting more people isn't actually a real reason. I think that's a side effect of what we want to keep doing. Hmm. And so I want to keep doing, therefore, the bigger audience becomes necessary in order to push the boundary. So we need more horsepower. And so it's okay, that makes me interested in marketing. Sure. And so now that I've found a reason to get interested in marketing, the first thing was like, what is our potential audience? Like, what is the maximum? It's obviously more than we have now. Your TAM, if you heard that phrase. Uh-uh, no, I haven't. Total addressable market. Okay, perfect. So yeah. Yeah, there's obviously like some acronyms that I'm missing from the lingo, but... <laughs> but I, can, is, I can help you out with that. <laughs> yeah, this is this is one thing that I looked at, and it's like, it's massive, actually. It's Even massive. if it's a fraction of a percentage totally. of the population, it is more than we could ever actually... And we don't want to probably get that big. So let's say it's a 1% of the United States. It's like 380,000 people or something. Or what, what is it? 300, yeah, whatever. 3.8 million. Yeah. Okay. So it's like a fraction of that percentage. Man, we're talking to facilitate our stuff for that many people is too much. You know, it, it gets into the messy area of where I have to start thinking about supply uh, chains for paper and stuff that yeah. we probably, and I go, okay, but that's okay. How do we how do we just move the needle? And it's fairly simple, actually. It's like we have a diver- actually a lot of our stuff is complex. I'll admit that, and it's like deep seated, and it takes a huge buy in because you're reading. Most people don't read anymore. That's why you don't have a mass market product, right? But we do have we have diverse products, and yeah. what I would say is that we actually do appeal to some mass market stuff. It's just we don't know how to do the mass market appeal, like our online training program is a perfect example of something that's scalable um all the work is already done it's high quality it has like everything that you would ever need but we're disgusted by people that leverage incorrectly or ingenuinely so the trick there is trying to figure out how to leverage appropriately in order to get that thing to grow so that it can let other things blossom. And I, I can't imagine you guys going through this process and not doing it with integrity so I just sure. I, don't, I don't see that as a, as a, as a realistic fear slash gating factor on how you guys are going to scale because you're not you're not going to end up in a place where you look backward and say god we did this we are fucking charlatans <laughs> you're what just not you're on, not going yeah, to what would be on like oh mark's like oh fuck we're on qvc like <laughs> <laughs> no no no. be like fuck i'm on qvc <laughs> yeah I've, i if it was funny i would be like yeah if it, you know, pay for the video if it's yeah. entertainment i'll yeah. pay for it it's like we had one idea in fact we i actually ben staley we got him to do uh one i had this idea for uh, we we're gonna oh bring, we we're gonna ban rays but ended up being poison poison would be like a coffee table book for sociopaths <laughs> and so we had this idea of like entering through a kill room and like <laughs> in, a, in a girl under a coffee table and on top of it kind of like zooms in so he came in there's like blood splattered on shit <laughs> and it's like this is this is our marketing like what the <laughs> fuck <laughs> well you're uh, you're um clearly identifying your target market yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like i know our audience way too well um, and it's not going to grow much past that if that is our idea of what we are. But it has been it's been really interesting to to understand the imp- to come from a genuine need to grow 
Yeah. Not not just the I'm doing this because I want to consume more. Yeah. Um, that I think that has been fascinating, and it, it, man, there's a lot to learn there because we're so new with this. But and I think there's some really f- some fascinating things there because we because th- that need let's just say the need to grow so that we can be more free to do other things mm-hmm. um and whether that's you know time or resources uh doesn't matter but it's just that like it, what i see that has happened is like we've been now we have multiple projects <laughs> that we really want to do you know in group and as individuals and we've created this um factory <laughs> in a sense of doing things that are not those or the things that the number of things that we wanted to do in the beginning were manageable for the size for for the resources mm. we had and the people who we you know the amount of energy that we have um and now it's like we've taught ourselves to do more and to do better and so we want to do even more yeah, yeah, and so now it's like, oh well, we do. Um, what about this particular book, and what about that book, and and, and is there a series where people can um, can learn these things and sort of interact in some way that you know leverages technology or something, you know, like, uh, and now there's a because there is this desire to do even more that comes with the capacity to do so, mm. um, then it's then it. I think the idea of growth did has slowly been circling the camp um, in a in a way that does have integrity. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think we'll get it. Like I think we'll get it probably right before all of the banks crash. <laughs> <laughs> well, so long as you're not. Looking to bar- borrow money in order to fuel the growth, and you're, who gives a shit? I, that's one, that's yeah. one of the probably I think the most stress relieving thing is that a we didn't have to borrow money enabled in order to do this thing. Yeah, yeah. It was you know, and it is profitable because of that. Um, and I think we're careful because of that. Like we still care about what we spend money on. It's not you know nothing is flagrant other than Misty Bravo. <laughs> I say that's like gonna say hey, we're I'm, really responsible. <laughs> as ignore we're, the decorations. At the, ex, <laughs> I was next to we're really table. responsible. Have you seen the latest gas bill? <laughs> oh. <laughs> I haven't actually. Uh, energy costs are real. Oh, okay. ener- the increased energy costs are are real. Yeah. Fuck, man. Um, man, should we? Was that three hours? What is that? Not quite, but oh, I, but close enough. Yeah, it's, it's getting hot in here. So yeah. Um, I don't. Do people find you? Do, what's this book called? What's uh, when's it going to be out? The working title is either inevitable or irresistible. Um, oh, okay. And I'm just tying off the chapters for the first complete draft. Oh, of, no kidding! Sort of right so it's now. close. So the, what they've told me is that it's about a year yeah. from completing the first draft until it's live and in the wild. Okay. Um, and, you know they've um. I've learned a lot about the publishing industry oh, yeah. in this process, yeah. and one of them is we're going to grill you on that later. Well, one of one of them is if if you get an advance, mm. 
then there is an expectation that they will earn that money back. Yes. Right? Why, yes. And so there's a marketing plan that goes behind it, but really it's pretty bare bones. And what it really is, it's like a, it's like a venture portfolio of startup operations where they are waiting to see which book gets traction, and then they just pile in behind it. Behind the one that, that Behind does. the one, because they'll, yeah. they'll, they'll fund sort of 15 to 20 yeah. new books a year, mm-hmm. and wait to see which one starts to and then they'll put their marketing behind that yeah so you get a little you get a little bit of marketing budget because you know they gave me a, a a great advance and they want to they want to get that money back yeah um but so they, they'll market it enough to do that yep as a minimum yep, yep. absolutely just a return to break break even they just want to make sure they don't lose money in all their books equilibrio equilibrio <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> whether it's publishers or cartels yeah we just want to balance <laughs> publishers or cartels yeah, but I gotta say, man, like being in Mexico and running this little hospitality business um, and surfing a lot. Nice. You know, you talk about doing what you want to do, freedom to do that. You know, I've I've achieved some level of mastery in some variety of areas, and I've surfed cons- sporadically for a really long time, and it's always been a super frustrating activity for me <sighs> because I'll surf for a week or two on vacation, and yeah. just about the time that it's over, I'm like. I was just getting it. Just getting good again, right? Yeah, yeah. And being able to, and it's a completely arbitrary and capricious pursuit, totally selfish, I admit it, but being able to get up and surf almost every day has been a source of real surprising joy for me. I, and I ma- wouldn't say it's selfish. I bet you're a better person because of it. My wife absolutely would say yeah. that. I was going to say, ask, ask, ask your wife. Yeah, and, I, and you know, to sort of go back to that comment I made earlier, um, you know, there were, de- there were times when I'm, I was very productive and, fulfilled and gratified and stimulated while I was at Caprock. But the reality of being in, in a world like that is that it requires an enormous amount of a very small part of you mm. to have that work. And what I think you guys are doing here is exploring a whole lot of different aspects of your character and personality and how you want to be in the world. And that's a much more sort of fulfilling overall engagement. And I remember when I told my partners that the first time, I said, look, you guys, this is not really a sustainable position for me like it's not sustainable because it's causing me to let drift or lie fallow or die completely these other parts of me that are really important to me and it's adventure and travel and physical fitness and music and it's like writing and all this shit is not happening because i'm so focused on this and that is going to crack me one of these days yeah and i think that's basically what happened and what i'm doing right now is is trying to bring all that shit back into my life and i'm writing Mm -hmm. and i'm doing some investing stuff and i'm much more sort of I'm less focused with it, but I'm much more sort of generally active. I'm active all fucking day long, right? Yeah. I'm surfing and I'm working on the property and I'm helping Jose and I'm going, you know, it's like, and it's just a much, it's a much more um, filling. It's, it's a much more say, filling life. I would call it rich. It's a much richer life. Yeah, It's a much richer life. And I was, you know, I was in, asked very recently if I would consider going back to work and the, and the income was like eye popping and there was an equity stake and they basically said, you're the guy we really want to do this with. And you know, my first reaction was no fucking way, <laughs> like absolutely no fucking yeah. way. And then I talked to my wife about it and she says, well, you know, you might have some unfinished business in the financial world. And if this sort of works, like I think you should talk to them mm-hmm. and see what this might look like, which was a very, she's a very sensible, yeah. intuitive woman. But my first reaction was, are you fucking kidding me? Like this life that I have right now, I will protect this nice. with everything I have. And that, and, and imagine like, 
spread that to the majority of the population <sighs> and you actually have a um a, a nation worth defending and you have a population that is in a place that takes care they their their position is so valuable that they will do anything to defend it and that's what creates a community yeah and that's what creates a, a state and a nation and, and everything but when you reverse that based off of whatever this system has gotten us which i think is the opposite um yeah, of course it's going to eat itself you know and th that that's that story about like yeah you you played the game you did the things and this is where you ended up it was like that that if that's i hope that's in the book no not this one but i've already pitched them another book and Good. that's what yeah. it, that's what really that what it is. that is a fucking story yeah i mean it's, i i can say i can say this with um with total clarity at this point, the last few years of my time at Caprock, you know, I was, you know, making sort of $1.5 million a year in income. Mm -hmm. And then the equity value of my business was appreciating at, you know, 20 to 30% a year. So it was just, you know, doubling over mm -hmm. the course of t three years. And it's just like, I've never been so unhappy, like, yeah. like completely unhappy, <laughs> angry at the world, mm -hmm pissed off I, I would go on runs in the foothills and i would be screaming in into the void literally oh, you're, you're one of those people at the breathwork class. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean that's actually that's exactly right i was i had so much shit that yeah. i was not processing and yeah. not grappling with and you know it's so cliche right money can't buy you happiness and that i'm just a living fucking proof of that and yet where were you in that arc when we talked five years ago right before that started Oh, really? Because you look way fucking healthier now. Oh, yeah. And it, obviously, you've been serving. I hugged you earlier. I'm like, this dude's fit. Yeah. Like, it, your energy is, uh, it, it's, 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 it's very different. Yeah, actually, when I, when I timestamp it, no, I was right in the meat of that because it's been three years since I left Caprock. And I was mm. thinking, yeah, five years ago, I just left Caprock recently. No, I mean, that was two years before I left Caprock before it all collapsed and oh, I was okay. I was right in the meat of that and there were there were facets of that were, that, that were still quite stimulating you know, mm -hmm. sort of professionally gratifying my ego was being absolutely filled at that time but man that was it yeah like nothing else wow. and then we saw each other Rebecca's yeah and you were unfit for the task I was not up for the <laughs> what task year, what year was that 2018 yeah I was I must have been out of it I, I DNF'd I don't remember. I was there, wasn't I? I think you were there the, the following year. No, you both years. I think you were there, but you did the fifty. Oh, so the second. You just year, did, yeah, okay. and I did the stage, and you did the big. Uh, I just did the one. I didn't finish it. Yeah. Oh man! I, I totally we, like, came unglued. Got up the hill, and we were headed charging down the other side. You got me on somebody's wheel that got me across that flat, side, and then you were gone. I just yeah. looked around, and you were, and then done. Yeah. Uh, but it didn't. It didn't seem like. Um, it seemed like energy had been <laughs> elsewhere, being devoted elsewhere. Which that's amazing. You know, all I was doing after because I got my hip replaced that year, huh. and so yeah. that oh, it, that, was that event yeah, okay. was like my big test of like, is it? Can I continue living a life of being a dude on a bike or whatever? Yeah, or being fit. And so I had put all this stuff in, and and yeah, you rode away from me. I think I uh, rode away from everybody. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was the year I did the hundred. Okay, and it was fucking terrible. Uh, 
The next year, dude, doing the, oh, yeah, the yeah, 60 yeah. or whatever, the, the shorter one the next year was awesome. I did That's the 51 year. I, th- I think I did, and it was like, well, that was fun. <laughs> yeah, it was super fun. <laughs> I had a great time, actually. The next year I went back fully un- not yeah. tr- not, I, at some point you get so far out, you just may as well, you know, Finish the it. only way to get back is to keep going. Yeah. Fuck me. Yeah, that 2019 was, was, was bad. It was yeah, it was it was rough. It was yeah. I mean I had a great time. I mean mine was different. Mine was chemically enhanced. So, <laughs> it was a it was a different. I was not on a I was like I was floating on a broomstick by, kind of deal <laughs> by cramps. Oh what yeah, I was <laughs> enhanced yeah. by. Are you gonna? Are you still riding a bike? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I'm really I'm, I'm really surfing a lot. Yeah, good. Like I'm I'm trying to understand what it means to be a waterman. Like what? That, oh yeah, what I mean, that actually means? Yeah. And it's it's so far from anything I've ever experienced. Yeah, that it's um, at times in, like intensely humbling. Um, yeah. and I've developed a level of mastery with a surfboard now that I feel I, I feel very confident in most surfing conditions. You know, I'm not going to yeah. go when it's really really big because yeah. I just know that I'll I'll get hurt. Yeah. Um, but all the other dimensions of, of yeah. being waterman, you know, free diving yeah. and like, wow, that's just an entirely new world for me. And, and I feel a crazy one. Yeah. And I feel super, I feel yeah. super grateful to be, um, you know, at this point in my life where I can get on another learning curve Yeah, and just, yes, just enjoy being at the bottom of the learning curve. Cause so much of the last 15 plus years of my life has been about not being mm-hmm. at that fat mm-hmm. bendy part of the learning curve and sort yeah. of instead being up sort of in the top right corner of the learning curve. And it's, you know, it's a very, it's a different way of being in the world. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, you mentioned not going out when it's big as that, that's some kind of like takeaway from being a waterman, but I was, I would describe that's what makes you want is understanding conditions that you should be in and conditions that you shouldn't be in. Like that, that I think is the baseline for being a waterman. Well, yeah. And, and there, and there's, it's really, it's sort of interesting dynamic because I've never lived in an ocean environment. I lived, yeah. lived in, in, in an ocean facing town before for yeah. more than a couple of months. Um, and I've been there now for almost two years and I've earned a place in the lineup. The locals are totally welcoming to me, which was a huge win for me. Um, but you know, last, last year or this, this, this season, we got a huge swell and, um, I went down as it was building with my board and I looked at it as I was stretching, which is really a form of procrastinating on the beach because you don't want to fucking paddle out because you get your ass so kicked. You know, I'm doing some fucking yoga bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> two, two guys get washed ashore with broken boards. Oh, shit. And I'm like, I should not paddle out. And I said, okay, I, I got to just like dip into my little bag of courage, paddle out. And even if all I do is paddle out and sit out there terrified and then wait for some lull and then fucking paddle back in, like yeah. if that's all I do, like I'm okay with that. But I'm gonna go out there, so I paddled out and um, decided I was gonna try to catch a wave and chased one and looked down the lineup and completely froze and got pitched over the falls and got churned up and <laughs> was like paddled back out again. I was like, okay, that's like. But then I got a wave. Nice. And I was like, huh, all right. And I got another one. Like you know, ten or fifteen minutes later, and I was like, all right, that's good enough for me. Like I, I, yeah. I went out. I was scared. Yeah. I got into this environment that could could harm me, and I, 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 and I managed it. I managed it well. Yeah. And I exited. So I went down there two days later and the swell had built up a little bit more. And I was like, no. Nice. <laughs> yeah. like, I'm not going to paddle yeah, out yeah. again. I'm not yeah. going to go into that. I got my pa- hall pass. and I'm gonna... <laughs> That's cool. And it was a really fun experience. Yeah. And then to talk with some of the other local surfers who were good enough to 
sort of capitalize on that moment, which doesn't happen very often, and to feel the energy in the town just build around the swell and to go down there in the morning and have people sort of watching and yeah. go down in the evening and people just watching. It was just a... That's it's, wild. It's an environment yeah. that I don't know anything about. And yeah. it was so cool to have like, to be sort of feel like I'm part of that community now. Yeah, that's cool. That's a, I mean, yeah, you can't buy that. No. Right. <laughs> I mean, even just a little, just stupid stuff, you know, the lineup for surfing is very hierarchical mm-hmm. and very political, right? And who gets priority in the wave and how you surf will determine whether or not they give you another wave. And for months... I would be paddling for a wave and some dude would be yelling at me to get off the wave, you know, months. Yeah. And they were always local guys. And I just would always respond politely, just back off the wave, back off the wave. And then sometimes I'd surf little shoulder waves that nobody wanted and yeah. gradually. And then the first time one of the local guys like waved me onto a wave was like such a breakthrough. And it's so small, it's so petty, but it's also so important in that community to feel a little breakthrough moment like that was was really cool for me. And That's awesome. Yeah, just super small scale, but really, but not essentially yeah, but essentially like, human. Yeah, uh, yeah. I was gonna say it's 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 like it feel it might like feel subatomic, but it's also how you you know uh, blow up a city. You know, like it's like the little thing is the big thing because it's like it means everything. And and that's why I think that what you guys are doing here is so sort of interesting slash valuable because you, you're you not trying to do this big thing. Mm. You're trying to do this really um, granular, integrity-filled, high-value information for whoever wants it. Yeah. If you want it, that's what we're building it for. And it's so, it's so much like that. It's like, are you willing to go out there every fucking day <laughs> and suck? Yeah. And just miss waves and fall and just look shitty, but be polite and respectful and like get the fact that you're not trying, but just show up, like paddle out. Is it flat? Paddle out. Is it big and scary? Paddle out. Is it windblown and shitty? Paddle out. Like go out there and earn your place in lineup. And once you get that, it's like suddenly the whole thing opens up in a really different way. Yeah. It's a metaphor for something. uh, Yeah, for sure. If only we weren't in Salt Lake City and we had an ocean view, I'd be much happier right now. (laughs) But, But the mountains are nice. It's been good. I mean, well, yeah, it's been good, actually. The snow again. This winter, yeah. It's been heavy. 700 inches at the base of Alta. It's like, wow. that is fucking crazy. It's an enormous amount of snow. Yeah, in fact, I'm going to go snowboarding tomorrow, I think. Right Fuck on. work. <laughs> I'm over it. Anyway, uh, when you book up, please come back whenever. You're always welcome. It's I, always I will, a pleasure I having totally you. totally will love to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, super enjoyable conversation. Yeah. Guys. Okay. Yeah, same. It's really good to see you. Yeah, and it's good to see you. That smile. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you guys got to come down and visit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I haven't been to I've been to Puerto Vallarta for a while, but I uh, Salida sounds nice. It's a good town. That. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Thank you very All much. Right, you guys. Yeah. Thank you.